they care about order. This is, I mean, it's sort of fun coincidence here, and I actually posted on my social media earlier today about this. Um, today is the anniversary of the founding of the Gestapo mm. in 1933. You know, that's what they mean. When the right is talking about law What year order, is it? What year? 32? 33. 33. So how many years is that? Oh, <laughs> I think I'm terrible with that. I think um, it's uh, 87. 80, I think the, you um, get leather for that. We, we should buy leather for your <laughs> Gestapo friends for the. Yeah, but but yeah, the it's that's the order that they need. They want people able to kick in the doors and drag people out. I mean, I don't know. Look at today. Everyone's just like. Um, defending ICE as though it's always been around, and it's actually a relatively recent organization. We used to protect the border, but we didn't send people into, like, you know, kicking doors in frickin' Montana looking for people. And give them detention centers. ICE is a Gestapo, and our, you know, we have concentration camps. But there's a real dishonesty about that. Just think of the term concentration camp. If you say that in the U.S. today, all people think about is the death camps. They don't even think about the rest of Nazi concentration camps. They're not thinking about, like, Theresienstadt or Dachau. They're thinking of um, Auschwitz and Treblinka. But the rabbis, the, the Jewish uh, intellectuals, have said that detention centers are, by definition, yeah. concentration camps. You're not misusing the term. Where did we put the Japanese during World War II? Concentration camps. What's the term that everyone uses? Detention center. It sounds better. They, we say uh, internment camps, generally. Right. You know, we interned the Japanese. We talk about Japanese internment is always the, the headline and the, the, the sections and books and whatnot. Yeah, they get to learn a lot of new skills. They don't get paid, but a valuable experience. Right. right. Yeah, there's concentration camp life in a nutshell. Internment literally is for prisoners of war. By us continuing to use the term internment for Japanese Americans, we are using the same rationale that FDR did. We're basically saying Japanese Americans were enemy agents. It, they're, they're, by definition, not internment camps. They're concentration camps. So are the ones in the border. A concentration camp is just pulling people together in one place and locking them all up. Yeah, I remember, uh, I remember vividly, this was three years ago, the, the detention centers, which still exist. I mm -hmm. think they're just as bad. I'll ask you about that in a second. And the left, the, the liberals, started calling them concentration camps. And 20% of American Jews are effing morons. They are. They're the dumbest people I've ever met in my life, and they vote for Trump, and they immediately go, how dare you invoke concentration camps? This, you're demeaning the memory of the... And then the Jewish intellectuals said, listen, moron, these are concentration camps. Read a book, you... The modern concentration camp in the Boer War in 18, 1898. Right. Yeah. In just rounding up civilians and locking them up is a concentration camp. And it yeah. doesn't matter if it's for, you know, political prisoners, immigrants, undesirables, whatever. If you're rounding up a specific class of people and putting them in, in, a, in a big outdoor prison, it's a concentration camp. Yes. Go ahead, Professor Hussein. Well, I, I was going to say it's just a matter of how do you interpret what never again means. Is it just never again to us? <laughs> or is it never again should this kind of oppression of people take place? And if you stand in solidarity with others, then you interpret never again in that more universalist. Mm -hmm. like drawing from the experience of the Jewish people, 
suffering the Holocaust that nothing like this genocide should ever happen to anybody else. But you could also just say, well, never, it should never happen to us again. The thing that I find so frustrating is I was taught the Holocaust is in all of us. We are all capable of falling prey to Hitler. And that you, you never forget this because... It's constant vigilance because all of us can fall prey to fascism. And yet, I've explained away a lot of things that Reagan, Trump, uh, George W. Bush have done where I go, but well, not Trump, but I'll say with Bush and Reagan and Poppy Reagan. And by the way, he's called Poppy because in the CIA he dealt heroin. Uh, he's such a nice guy. He can't really mean. I mean, he's oh, yeah. making difficult. I fall prey to this all the time, and so the Nazis were not socialists, right? Yeah. Hitler yeah. was not a socialist. No, he, the, he, not, the Nazi movement is explicitly opposed to the left and to socialism. The first people they started rounding up were socialists. What about unions? Were the Nazis for unions or against the Nazis unions? Nazis outlawed unions. They, they explicitly outlawed labor unions. And, and their economics. Were, well, this extreme nationalism of fascism and other ultra-nationalist kinds of movements is essentially to try and create this fictive solidarity that should overcome class consciousness. Right? We all have to be unified, and that's why you have emotion, and that's why you have spectacle, because these things are not subject. We can all experience the spectacle collectively together, uh, and we don't have to think then about, wait, my interests are opposed to yours because you're preventing me from earning a living wage, and right. you're not giving me you know, housing, and so on. And so it's trying to suppress that kind of politics of class difference, within this great sort of mystical national unity. Let me ask you about social issues. I'm not making this up. Oklahoma uh, tried to outlaw cockfighting. I think they succeeded in it. And a, a state senator who wanted to defend cockfighting said, and I quote, the first thing Hitler did when he took power was outlaw cockfighting. And that's you know, that has just been a default for the right wing. The first thing Hitler did was take away our guns, abortion, and I guess uh, he uh, allowed same-sex marriage because of Ernst Röhm. I've, I've heard the right wing say that Hitler was very accepting of gays. It was a decadent culture. and they they in, within the party before they took power, there was a kind of like, oh, whatever, we'll tolerate this around people like Rome. But the movement was always explicitly homophobic, um, and they actually overturned several Weimar, Weimar um, provisions that actually were much more accepting of, of homosexual cultures in Germany. Okay, so, so fascism is homophobic? Well, again, traditional sex and gender roles. Okay. So, yeah. It, it, Abortion? homophobia, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, those, the restoring traditional values. So what about abortion and contraception abortion, and stuff like that? It just goes away. Um, it's, um, it's, it varies a little bit. Because um, of eugenics. Right, exactly. Mm -hmm. But 
um, in many forms of fascism, I don't know, for example, like, you know, um, the Italian, Salazar in Portugal, Franco, whatever, in Metastasis, Greece, there was a serious um, issue with abortion. And in Nazi Germany, too, there was an issue with abortion, but it was because of the demographic fears that they felt. And, and this is true of fascist, neo-fascist movements everywhere. There's this desire for the nation to grow faster so you don't need immigration. Mm-hmm. You wanted lots and lots of German babies. What about gun ownership? Um, gun ownership, that's also a, a bit of right-wing bullshit there. The Nazis never banned guns. What they did was they took them away from Jews. All through Nazi Germany, Germans had plenty of guns. Just like today, the Germans still have plenty of guns. <clears throat> right. But that, but that, that is an argument that I could see the, the right seizing upon. They took the, the first thing they did is they took the guns away from the Jews so they would be defenseless. That is an, that is an argument. For, but, it's, but it's not how they generally use it. They're trying to basically say that, you know, any kind of gun control period is an attempt to take all of our guns or whatever here, and the Nazis took our guns. They didn't. They took them from their social undesirables. They took them away from, from Jews and socialists or whatever, and that was it. What about fiscal, fiscal austerity, balanced budgets? Deeply opposed to. Um, and this Deeply opposed to fiscalists, or they were for it? There's a, there's a, um, a fun element to this um, in the right in the U.S., too. And again, well, I, I want to get clear here. So uh, it's my understanding that a fascist regime will uh, appropriate fiscal austerity, that we need balanced budgets. Generally not. Um, they'll sometimes use the rhetoric. And this is where, again, there's an internal kind of contradiction there. And it's something, we again, we can trace back into the Reagan years. Um, Reagan talked about the need for a smaller government and balanced budget, but Reagan massively increased the size and scope of the federal bureaucracy and massively expanded government spending. Trump As did George W. Bush and Donald Trump. George w. Bush and H. W. Bush and you know and 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 Trump. Yeah. While preaching them. austerity. Well, they they preach austerity, and this is because there's a coded language. It's actually a dog whistle. When they're talking about smaller government and austerity, what they mean only is social programs. It's critical of Johnson's Great Society. It's critical of welfare programs. It's it's critical of the New Deal. It's not critical of spending overall. They honestly don't give a shit if we spend a trillion dollars in the military, but they don't want one red cent going to a brown family. Right, so they want the money being spent on, they want the money being given to the richest 1% in terms of tax breaks. To the and to the military and the state, yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. It's, uh, so there's, a, there's a, a contradiction, and I think this is another problem where, where liberals fall for it. They fall for the, the rhetoric and don't catch the dog whistle. That austerity language is only aimed at social programs, and we think that, oh, you're being hypocritical, you're calling out, you're calling for austerity and against spending, but then you raise the budgets, and that is never going to work for them because it's not, uh, it's, it's not hypocritical at all. They know exactly what they're talking about. They only want to take money away from poor people. I see. Uh, I took the test that we took a couple of weeks ago. I'm going to try to find it. Here it is. Uh, I have to drag it to find out where I fall on the political spectrum. So let me share this. Oh, Which one did you do, the, the political compass? Or the yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, turns out I'm a Nazi. No. Uh, can you see that? Yeah, yeah. Surprise, yep. surprise. Yeah, here I am. I'm next to uh, Emma Goldman, mm-hmm. uh, a little further to the left, I believe, than Noam Chomsky. No, uh, that's, that spot right there is right where Chomsky falls and where I fall as well. 
Yeah. <laughs> All in the same spot. Okay. And I took the test. I, I inhabit the, the left libertarian quadrant of the political mm -hmm. compass. I guess I'm a libertarian. You spoke of it. I'm, a, I'm more to the left than Bernie. Mm -hmm. Now, Biden is here. He falls mm -hmm. like one or two boxes below Trump. Like he's right next to Trump in terms sure. of authoritarian right-wing beliefs. Is that true? No, it, it, it's absolutely true. Um, all of our recent um, presidents and all of our major uh, politicians, other than people like Bernie, have been in the authoritarian right. Um, Bernie is a really rare exception because he takes us back, and, and actually Bernie is usually put a couple of points further over. The one with the big pictures on it is a little, um, it's because they're giant characters that's right. going to be getting a He's usually slightly further right even than that. But still, he's essentially a center-left libertarian. Right, right. He's basically a centrist. He's a, he's a moderate. But honestly, a lot of the Democratic coalition used to fall into that area, too. He used to have plenty of us in there, you know, in the FDR to Johnson years. But our politicians have drifted very, very far. The Overton window has shifted considerably. And a lot of this has to do with just how far right the Republicans have gone. And the Democrats basically pick up disgruntled conservatives and themselves drift farther to the right. You can see a significant chunk of that happening by the late 80s. But when you see, when you see that Joe Biden is in the same quadrant as Benito Mussolini, Augusta Pinochet, Donald Trump, uh, Bolsonaro, and Jim Belushi... That doesn't seem fair. Why is Jim Belushi? I'm just joking about Jim Belushi. Uh, can, so are we under threat of fascism with Biden? And do the Democrats uh, fall under your – how many boxes do they – does Biden check in terms of no, your – Fascists and neo-fascists is only the, the, the very few rows in the top. Um, there's a pretty broad continuum of um, authoritarian ideology. Uh, basically, if you're in favor of state power in general, if, as long as you're talking about, you know, policing and border control and everything else like that, you're going to end up on the authoritarian side of it. Uh, so, so you're not worried. You're not worried of the, of the Democrats. No. And this is where, again, um, it's why I use key characteristics to define ideologies. That the Democrats simply don't have, you know, uh, the, the major features that would fall into fascism. But a lot of Democrats are quite conservative. They're often quite authoritarian. There are definitely plenty of neoliberals there. There are a lot of statists in the Democratic Party, for sure. Define but status. What is a status? Well, you know, strong, strong government, state power, you know, more authoritarian. There are a lot of authoritarians in the Democratic Party, but not of the fascist variety and generally not to the same extremes. Uh, the Republicans' major nominees in the, the last few cycles have all clustered in the very corner of that one, in the very upper right. I mean, Ted Cruz is all the way in the, the, the far, the, the upper right corner. Um, and, you know, what the Democrats have done is tended to fall very close. Hillary Clinton and Joe Biden both are very close to that. They're both quite far to the right and more than halfway up into the authoritarian corner. Where was FDR? When we took on fascism, was FDR? Yeah, FDR, is, FDR is a center leftist. FDR is um, a little bit more authoritarian than Bernie, but but center left. 
And so he'd be, he'd be like one to two, one to two spaces over on the left, but right around centrist. You know, the whole like, you know, let's borrow whatever ideas work. But he's definitely not actual socialist. A lot of the policies that you see with social democrats in general are intended to prevent socialism by compromising between the two. That's what Bernie does. That's what FDR did. That was but Lindbergh, Lindbergh, and uh, Prescott Bush, Harriman, uh, that firm. Were they fascists in the lead-up to? And so was Joe Kennedy, who was a Democrat, right? No, um, Lindbergh was quite explicitly, you know, fascist. Um, and in, in the more of the classical sense, too. We actually had a significant fascist movement in the U.S. This is where um, people always saying, well, it can't happen here. I've always just laughed. It's like, dude, do you, you have any idea how, how significant the German-American Bund was or um, the uh, the America First movement that Lindbergh led? You know, I mean, or think about the, the right populist leaders around the same time. Was Huey like, Long a fascist? Yeah, Father Coughlin, there's a Huey Long, that whole like struggle there, all the, the, the populist rhetoric against FDR. Yeah, it's playing with the same kind of right populist, you know, quasi-fascist um, ideals. Right. Uh, no, there's a, there's a sharp continuum there, and it continued afterwards. It, it never, ever went away from American politics, but after World War II, we managed to relegate these things to extremes. We managed to say, well, you know, that it, this can't. There, there was a kind of bipartisan consensus around liberalism that you can see continuing. I mean, when I talk about the New Deal consensus, you look at like FDR's terms and Truman's. You got to include Eisenhower's as well, right? And then you get Kennedy and Johnson. Eisenhower was a Republican, but absolutely continued that New Deal consensus. And Nixon initially campaigned also as a liberal. Okay, so we're, 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 here's, here's the deal. I know that Professor Hussein wants to say something. This is really, really important because, as you said, the Democrats are too polite to educate Americans as to what we're up against. Is it fair to say, and this was at the top of the segment, is it fair to say that a democratic politician has a moral obligation to explain what fascism is the way you have and then say, we are up against fascists. The Republican Party is controlled by fascists. Is it immoral for a democratic politician not to say that? I think it is. I think... You cloud. I think you cloud the issues unless you call something what it is. And Mitch McConnell, Donald Trump, Ted Cruz, Lindsey Graham, McCar McCarthy, Scalise are fascists. It's the short answer to that is that it's a there's there's a problem with it and a need to do it. The problem is that most Americans don't have a fucking clue what it means when you say it, and all they think of is Nazi Germany, and they say, well, the Republicans aren't calling for death camps, therefore you're lying, it's just hyperbole. And what it does is it actually gives them a, a way to shut it out and call us liars. But, but they, they call us communists. Well, sure, but that isn't helpful either. That, all that does is just... It is for them. It's problematic. It's helpful for them. Well, sure, but to their base, and, and but it doesn't help us to actually 
get <laughs> get anything done or solve our problems, does it? The, the issue there... Well, I disagree with you for one I, second. I, I, I'll tell you why I disagree with you, doctor. I've always maintained that the Democrats and Republicans, if you look at it from a Manichaean perspective, Republicans left to their own devices are fascists. Democrats, until... Clinton, when left to their own devices, were communists. If you if you really just played it out, if you let Roosevelt do what he wanted to do, it, it would be closer. He would make the communists happy. And if you let Reagan do what he wanted to do, he would have made the fascists happy. If you want to simplify things for the American people, I, especially after this conversation, if you want to make things really simple, left to their own devices, Republicans will give us fascism. Left to their own devices, the Democrats will give us communism. That, again, it's it's too simplified a rhetoric that actually, I mean, literally, because what FDR was doing was trying to prevent communism and socialism. There's there's no way in shape there's no possibility that you know that any part of that New Deal consensus. But the, but that stuff. But, but it was germinated in collectivist thought, and every bit as much in uh, liberal enlightenment thought. It's social social democratic thought is as much liberal as it is like okay. some elements from socialism. Too simplistic. Too simplistic. Anti-socialist because it's trying to break class consciousness and it substitutes a welfare state to make up for the abuses of capitalism, which ultimately ultimately leaves the power in the hands of the capitalists. To Social democracy leaves that power structure in place. Socialism tries to overturn it completely. This, this is I, I can't. This is one of the best segments we've had, Professor Hussein. You wrap it up. This is. Oh, no, it was, it was great. It I mean, has to be taught over and over and over again. Well, I think there's definitely there's definitely room to continue the conversation. I hope uh, Liam will come back, and maybe we can also talk a little bit about where we just were ending now, which is the sort of failures of liberalism, what we need, you know, to have that can actually confront this uh, growing fascism in this fascist moment that we're dealing with. And then another uh, area that often we uh, neglect that I hope you'll come back and we can discuss uh, further is also the relationship between fascism and empire and colonialism. So how that kind of militarism abroad has consequences in galvanizing fascistic culture internally in our domestic politics. So hopefully we can come back and, and, and continue the seminar. It's been great. Thank you so much. Thank you. Professor Hussein, happy Ramadan. When, did, when does it end? Uh, in two weeks. And how, and how are you feeling? Oh, I'm feeling okay. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm weathering the storm. I'm, I'm in a, soon I'll become an ethereal being. I will shuffle off this mortal coil and I'll just ascend into transcendence. That's the idea. Usually I just feel a little tired at the end of the month, but uh, we'll look forward to the Eid festival. Um, it'll be fun. Any deep dish pizza tonight? Uh, no, not tonight. Uh, just ravioli. Okay. Something yeah. light. Well, speaking of something light, let's talk physics. <laughs> this is my head is spinning from all this. Let's talk to physicists and Parks Commissioner of Aurora, Illinois, 
Professor Mary Ann Cummings. Would you like to, uh, before we say goodbye to uh, Dr. O'Mara and Professor Hussein, is there anything you wanted to add to that? Oh, I, you know, I, anything I could add would just, you know, require another hour of discussion because, you know, for instance, somebody as complicated as Joseph Kennedy, or for that matter, uh, who was the, the king that abdicated, abdicated the throne? The Duke of Windsor. Uh, the Duke of Windsor. Edward. Yeah. These are considered still civilized people that had definite Nazi sympathies. And I, I don't think there's a hard break between a fascist Nazi and a normal human being because uh, certainly one guy or a small group of guys did not exterminate 12 million people in concentration camps. That took the active participation of many million more people. I mean, the very willing participation of so many people. So, uh. I've always been for collective guilt, but, uh, this country opposed it. They decided it was just. Who the this country opposed it? Huh? Well, this part of the country opposed it and then kind of welcomed Nazis into our uh, national security apparatus. I believe in collective guilt. I believe all American all Americans are guilty for the crimes that we commit overseas. Yeah. Well, uh, I mean, Andrew Bacevich would actually agree with you that our very consumerist, self-centered, you know, individualistic type of economy here is directly tied to the wars abroad and to imperialism. And that, you know, the sensibility, if you want to stop the wars over there, we have to change our sensibilities to our consumption here. And we, we are all we are all gangsters for capitalism. Yeah, yeah. Andrew Basevic was on the show. Oh, he was? Yeah. You had Andrew Basevic? Wow, when was that? Uh, About five years ago. He told me Smedley Butler was a nutcase. He said Smedley Butler. There was this, supposedly, the industrialists wanted to get rid of Franklin Roosevelt when he first took over. And and I think GM, our friends from GM, (laughs) wanted Smedley Butler, who was at the time the most decorated soldier in America, to take over. There was going to be a coup. And Smedley mm-hmm. Butler went before, I think, the House or the Senate and exposed the coup. Of course, nobody went to prison. Andrew Basevic said that uh, Smedley had delusions. Have you heard that? that Smedley no, I, have, I haven't heard Andrew Basevich's uh, opinion of Smedley Butler. Smedley, Smedley Butler could have been telling the absolute truth and has, has been as mad as a marsh hare. By the right. time he said it, those are not incompatible things, you know, because when somebody goes through war, I mean, what do you think is worse? Saying, what do you think is worse? Going through the wars that Smedley Butler went through or having a first name of Smedley? I would think Smedley would make me crazy. I could handle the Spanish American War and World War One, the bonus march. But I think, hey, Smedley, I think that would get to me. Well, it would be kind of like a boy named Seuss, and, you know, <laughs> it either destroys you or toughens you up or makes you a psycho. <laughs> Who knows? completely consistent with being a highly decorated war hero. <laughs> so, 
Thank you. Morris. Morris. Dr. I'd love to have Dr. O'Meara back next week. Yeah, 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 yeah. What, what, what professor is in? Oh, just whether he was crazy or not, war is still a racket. Yeah. Yes. You know, very, you're saying noisy, turn it down. Yeah, exactly. Like silencers. Quietly, silencers. <laughs> yeah, silencers. Well, it's kind of interesting. Um, I, my father was too young for either the World War II or the Korean War, although my older uncles went to the Korean War. But no one I knew who, when I was a kid growing up, talked about the war, except for a German friend of my family's who told us one day about being a, a boy soldier in, in World War II and near the very end of the war. And he tells a story about, you know, he gets separated from his unit, and he encounters a very young American soldier. And they look at each other, and they just look around, and, and they just kind of shrug, and they leave. And he just tells, I, I can't even begin to reproduce this story. But that was basically the essence of it. But that was the only one. Um, in, in World War One, we had a concept of shell shock. You know, people really did understand that the war did something to people. But in war, after World War Two, that got suppressed. You know, isn't that weird? It, that got suppressed as a whole thing. People came back as war heroes, and then the economy was booming, and America was dominating the planet, and we won morally and physically and and, and economically. Watch if you watch Mad Men. They they kind of touch on. Draper was a Korean War vet, but uh, oh, yeah. but they had a lot of World War II vets in it, and they all the ones who saw real action. There was a race to self-destruct. Everybody fizzled out at a different time. Some made it through the fifties, some made it through the sixties, but by the seventies. You have Roger telling a Don at one point, that's the problem with your generation. You drink for the wrong reasons. They <laughs> <laughs> have real reasons to drink. So I saw it with my father's generation because he yeah. was a, he enlisted, he was 16 and he enlisted. That's Ooh, how far, yeah. that's how badly he wanted to get away from my grandmother. And I watched his friends and they all seemed to have come home. Uh, there was equity. You know, the GI Bill, they all, mm -hmm. if you were white, if you were African-American, uh, and uh, they all started at the same, to the sound of the same starting pistol. And then I watched his peers all self-destruct at various mm -hmm. times. Some made it into the 70s, the 80s, but... You know, the ones who lived into the 90s. Well, if you made it to the 90s. But some of them, they all had some kind of PTSD. Mm -hmm. It just wasn't yeah. talked about. But you couldn't talk about it right. because that was the good war. Yeah. Because if you talked about it, you would reveal what war really was. And I remember my socialist landlady when I was in college in the early 80s in Ann Arbor, but Michigan. She I paid you rent. She paid you rent, right? Just about I mean, I was looking at, I was renting a room there, and we're talking 1950s prices in 1980, and this is like, you know, uh, Ann Arbor, which is like Berkeley, which is like any one of these high-end, you know, university towns. But, you know, she, I remember sitting, uh, pontificating all the time, which is fun, and she just would point to me with her cigarette, 
and go, the problem with your generation is like, ooh, what is it, Lucy? <laughs> you didn't have a good war. <laughs> I'm going, I'm sure that's an illusion, but, you know, as far as they were concerned, it was a good war. There was at least a purpose. We defeated Nazis, and that, unfortunately for a lot of people, colored everything else. And I grew up watching the Vietnam War on my TV. I do have a nice memory of it, though, because I rarely saw my father laugh in those days. And there was somebody, so-and-so, ABC News, and he turns around and looks and says, and I have no idea where I'm at. You know, and my father just laughed aloud. It was kind of funny, but it was just this war. And I'm looking at this, and part of the reason I cannot be a proper adult now is because as a kid, I looked at the adult world, and they were all out of their minds still are, and, you know, it's just like, which is, you know, maybe why I was able to take in problem foster kids that nobody could deal with because they were kind of on their side. Um, Just don't kill anybody or, you know, be smart about it. But, you know, I, I can understand because it's like we never dealt with this. I mean, I'm looking at this, even my parents were, uh, you know, were for the Vietnam War, but they were of that generation that wasn't quite hippies, you know, but wasn't quite the World War II generation either. And they were, you know, getting all the benefits without having explicitly the trauma. My mother remembers growing up during the Depression, but she had an incredibly resourceful uh, mother, my grandmother, and everything got better. I don't begrudge them a penny. I remember my father going to law school. He ended up, you know, having one of the biggest law firms in the state of Michigan, but the entire universe was set up for parents, for people like my parents to succeed. Right. I mean, there there was a time, you know, you just got the big bounty of the post-war spoils and having no competition for a good generation. And uh, and that generation, you know, benefited from that. So, you know, it was, uh, it was weird how... So you're saying we need to go to war with China? Oh, okay. I what was that? How did they describe World War One when all the uh, when all the Allworthies got together and decided they would quote have a splendid little war? I was, that was Teddy Roosevelt. It was the Spanish. Was that Teddy Roosevelt? Teddy Roosevelt said that. I on. guess I was listening to a PBS special or something, and I heard those words. And then you know what happened was a nightmare they could never envision. Yeah, of course. Right. And. As I said, I did find out something about my grandfather. He was actually in that war. He never talked about it either. The only thing we got out of my grandfather were all these songs that he sang when my grandmother wasn't around. And, you know, but he was an ambulance driver. And your father became an ambulance chaser. Yeah. (laughs) Swing. (laughs) Oh, the irony. Yeah. That was a job, by the way, set aside for um, uh, conscientious objectors, as I later found out, with an ambulance drivers in World War One, And that is completely consistent with what my grandfather was. I couldn't imagine him hurting, harming anyone. I mean, so, yeah. That, this is my grandfather was an ambulance driver during World War One because he, he loved the sound of blood-curdling screams. That was, no, he, he did, was, did he? Yeah, he just said to me, I I wanted I wanted to fight in the war, but I was worried I would not hear blood curdling screams. So I volunteered yeah. to be an ambulance. Driver. 
What? What? You wouldn't hurry that and hear that in the trenches? My, both my. <laughs> hey, you should have volunteered to like be the you know the first round going over the barbed wire. But both um, my this is this is a true story. Both my grandparents, but both grandfathers came mm-hmm. to America. They were here for like five years, and then they got a note from the government. Guess where you're going? Oh. You're going back with a gun. They they returned to, uh, and uh, yeah. You you actually could do more than one tour of duty back in those days. I think World War One was one. T- no, no no, they were immigrants. They came from. Oh, they, they came from. Oh, I see. They I came see from Europe. Ah, okay. They came right. from Europe, and they were told you're going back to yeah. <laughs> kill the people you fled, and I think they were more than willing to do that. I think they had no problem. Uh, my grand, one of my grandfathers was gassed and became a pothead. He became a communist and a pothead and a devotee of Moby Dick. He insisted everything was in Moby Dick. Oh, the book, the novel. Hmm. Yeah. Hmm. And he smoked a lot of dope. Yeah, well, might have had some medicinal value for the effects of gas. And he yeah. subscribed to the Daily Worker. Oh, okay. Well, you know, um, it's funny that that uh, communists and socialists are considered pie in the sky, but people who actually worked, I mean, real work, like work that 99% of the suburbanites are incapable of doing right now. Hang on, I I think I have a joke. Hang on. My grandfather subscribed to the Daily Worker. He worked, you know, he was an FBI agent, so he was monitoring that a yeah, joke? He comes from, was, he, was he the, uh, oh, okay. He worked for the FBI. He had to read the Daily Go ahead, I'm sorry. Oh, so that was, so he was one of the ones. Uh, you know, I had a, a friend, the only Marxist-Leninist I know, and she said back in the uh, late 60s, early 70s, they could always tell, these FBI guys, they were the only ones that paid their dues on time. <laughs> Wow! Wow! That's how you can tell who the uh, the the agent provocateur was. Yep. There'd be no Communist Party if it weren't for all the FBI agents paying their dues. Uh, You might think that's a joke. I I think that's more of the truth than an actual joke. And and why not? I mean, you needed an enemy here, right? I mean, that's kind of what the the perpetual national security state always needs an enemy. They have to create one if one a suitable one doesn't exist. Right. So, you know. Hey, how about this? I'm not, this isn't gossip. This is uh, Dr. Harriet Fraud was on the show earlier, and, mm-hmm. and she said she was on a plane uh, years ago before she was married, and David Rockefeller of trilateral. Mm-hmm. Fame, asked her out on a date. She did. I bet he did. And, and what she, did she say? She she said no. But can you imagine? Oh, my God. The glass of wine you would have been able to order on that date. Then she could have just said, you're great. But, you know. Well, that's off. Anyway. It's a deal. Yeah. <laughs> See what a Rockefeller does for you on the first date. That was. Or maybe he, did she know that he was in fact the David Rockefeller? She knows, of course. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. All right. Uh, yes. It was a Chase man. He ran Chase, and mm. and he owned Latin America, yeah. I believe. 
David Rockefeller. Okay, but what was it, the Rockefeller John D? Wasn't he Standard Oil? Yeah. Yeah. But that was like the great granddad. Okay. It was John D, then John, mm -hmm. and then the boys, like Nelson, David. <laughs> no. and, yeah, there were like six or seven Rockefeller boys. Um, yeah, one of our more colorful VPs for about a year and a half was that. He was better. He was the best Republican vice president. <laughs> In my life, yeah. let me say goodbye. Let me say goodbye to Professor Hussein oh. and Dr. Omar. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, both of you. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, all three of you have cats. Interesting. Yeah. What does that say? Professor Marianne Cummings is Park yeah. Commissioner of Aurora, Illinois. You heard the conversation we just had about fascism and how Donald Trump checked. All the boxes for fascism. Before we talk about Aurora, mm -hmm. uh, let me just push you a little. Mm -hmm. Yet you didn't vote for Biden. So that makes no, you a fascist. I, 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 I'm not good with logic, but ergo, you are. No. Uh, yeah. When you heard that comment, did it make you more worried about Trump? Because you were never that worried about Trump. Well, you know, you say, I'm not worried about Trump. I'm worried about the whole system. You know, to to say I'm to say I'm not worried about Trump is like to say I wasn't worried about Bernie Madoff, you know? Right. And I remember that Bernie Madoff just took an oversized role in the minds of a lot of people. And I think psychologically it was because, yeah, because this guy just became a sociopath, I mean, a compulsive liar, cheated his friends, cheated people, in a system that just did everything to encourage that. Mm -hmm. And because you could isolate, you, you could, because you could isolate his crime to these people, and, and not, and you could, you could pull it away from all the big, the truly criminal institutions like Deutsche Bank and Goldman Sachs and the rest, that was a great target for the the crowd to for for the power structure to go after because you took down Bernie Madoff, Bernie Madoff. You didn't take you didn't take down everybody anybody else. You took one guy down, and the system that produced him was able to perpetuate. So he had to go. You know, it's just like when you when you put too much on one individual, it, it it's sort of like again. He was horrible and terrible, and he was best friends with the, he was good buddies with the Clintons for years and years. Right. Years after I knew he was horrible and a racist and a liar and criminal. Right. Yeah, you know, all these people are kind of hanging out with him, and uh, so I think you fetishized one individual and not looked at the entire horrible system that allowed it. What I said earlier, because I'm looking at. Um, um, uh, Adolf Hitler, and he's a perfect monster. You know, he's a, he was just a perfect monster. Um, and you're not even allowed to show him as anything but. But there was a very interesting show. I, ironically, he's one of my favorite authors and never read his most famous book, Man in the High uh, Castle. Never read it by Philip K. Geek, and they did a series on Amazon, which was an alternative reality. 
so the Axis Powers won. Uh, Japan took the, the West Coast, the, the Nazis took the East Coast, the Eastern United States, and there was a neutral zone. And um, it was a fascinating sort of alternative history. And, but there's one scene where one of the characters who's set to kill him actually has a discussion with Adolf Hitler in 1962. And Adolf Hitler is an aging leader, world-weary, and he's telling these people surrounding me are monsters. And it's like, oh, wait a minute, you were the monster. But it's like suddenly there's a bit of realism there. It's like, yeah, you know, it's just like what happens if he had won? And there was this horrible thing we experienced as a horrible thing, the Holocaust and everything else. But almost every great civilization that has ever existed has done horrible things. I mean, as late as the 18... 80s and the 70s and 80s. I mean, there were just bounties. King Leopold of Belgium. Oh, yeah, I mean, look. It, and the Kaiser, I mean, when you look, so yeah. I, I think what you're saying. I'm not, and, and by the way, that's not to diminish the, like, stunning phenomenon that Nazism was. Right, it's but what you're saying is what, uh, I'm not putting words in your mouth, there is a very convincing argument for isolationism and not going into World War II, why an argument could be made, why would we go up against the Germans when King Leopold in Belgium has mm -hmm. killed millions and millions in the Congo? Why do we want to defend the French when you look at what they did in Mali and Africa and yeah, but, you know, those, Vietnam? Those why defend, why protect the British when you look at what they've done in India? in Africa, and, you know, and what they did after World War II in Kenya. So the argument against going into World War II has been, and Pat Buchanan spelled this out quite brilliantly, yeah. unfortunately, we sacrificed half a million men and women so that half of Europe could fall under the, the Iron Curtain of Stalin, who... Killed just as many people as Hitler. So, oh, at least. We, all we did was liberate Germany, France, and England and Belgium, which have a storied history of war crimes. You That's the argument against World War Two. You could take a very cynical look at it and you know say our late entry to the war and how we got there and how that the war was fought over there was a perfect way of us gaining supremacy on the planet. And then we only had, then it was a kind of a dual management of the entire planet between us and you know, Stalin and the Soviet Union. We let the Russians take, we, we dicked around in fighting Rommel in northern Africa while Stalin was fighting Hitler on the front. I mean, the Russians won World War II. Oh, yeah. Oh, hell they did. And, uh, you know, I'm just remembering, I, I, I'm just remembering patent. What was it, George C. Scott? Patent. Give me two weeks. I'll defeat those bastards. I'll make them look like they started it. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, that was a, uh, I, look, I had old relatives, and, of course, as a kid, I didn't understand them. Entirely, but I do remember what they would say. They talked. They they referred to uh, old 
FDR is that goddamn paraplegic who handed the world over to the goddamn commies. I mean, I heard my older relatives, my great aunts and uncles, talking that way. So were there a lot of people who... Uh, were they in Michigan? Oh, yeah, they're all in Michigan. Oh, so they listened to Coughlin. Wasn't Coughlin, Father Coughlin? Uh, well, was he, was he out of... They may have... I thought he was out of uh, uh, Kansas City. I think his parents... I think he was Canadian, and he came over the border. Hmm. And well, I, I know there was a priest in that was broadcasting out of uh, Kansas who was a proto-Rush Limbaugh, very you know pro-fascist. But um, anyway, no, I just think that uh, I think some of the older people in my family were Republicans, not Democrats, and. Uh, which is odd because they, because my great grandfather was manager of a coal mine. My 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 grandfather, the one who ended up driving a, a an ambulance in World War One, he actually worked in the mine because his father, who was a manager there, thought he would you know put some starch in him to actually do real work. And my grandfather ended up causing an accident that killed his 14-year-old friend in the mine. Mm-hmm. But the this was in this was during World War Two. This was during this was even before World War One. This was in Puxatawney, Pennsylvania, before they moved over to uh, Detroit, where all the you know auto industry jobs were. So did you know the Groundhog? Phil? Never met him. Never was never in Puxatawney. Oh. Hmm. Maybe I should go there. But, I mean, this, this, this discussion of Nazism in our history, it's very multi-layered and very interesting, um, you know, and it really, I mean, it's not like we wiped out the Nazis, we just kind of took them into our, partly into our national security apparatus and various countries down in Latin America took them into theirs. We never would have gone to the moon had it not been for the Nazis. No. I send the rockets up. Don't care where they come down. That's not my department. So what about the rock? The Diddy? Oh, it's down there. Oh. oh, okay. I thought that was from Dr. Strangelove. This was great. Uh... This uh, Thursday's recording session for the professors and Marianne? Yeah. yeah how, great I, was, I, how great was that conversation? Yeah, well, I uh, might have some questions for Dr. John, or Professor John on that one. So, Good. yeah. There's a very interesting conversation about unions that I would like, you know, for people to think about because, you know, they're thinking that they can pass uh, this uh, pro-union act that would require 60 votes, and they're talking about mobilizing unions across the country. And I said, well, that would be a trick. I mean, unions have forgotten how to... You had how to come together as one since Reagan, you know, broke PATCO and the other unions refused to do a wildcat strike, a sympathy strike. So maybe this might be a way we come back to that point. And goddamn, what the hell's going on with the with with the union, the, the letter carriers union, the postal union? What? They don't, they, they don't want Biden to get rid of DeJoy. Are you kidding me? I am not kidding you. They do not want it. That's the leaders. That's not the rank and file. 
And again, you know, I think in all unions, the leaders, the union leadership just identifies, seems to identify more with management and the companies or, or the organizations that they're bargaining with than they do with their own rank and file. And I get it. I see it in local government. People develop a personal relationship with some member of government who, you know, can do favors for them, regardless of ideology. And they, they've got something invested in that personal relationship. And if you replace that guy, no matter how bad he is for the rest of your union, you know, uh, he's good for you because you have power and influence due to your relationship with him. It's the only thing I can come up with. But you we need well, what this country needs is an activist government. You need a secretary of labor who's mm-hmm. going to go in and clean up the unions. You need a justice department that's going to clean up the unions so that they're protected from their own leadership. That's the power of the federal government. The federal government can dictate how efficient and honest unions are, and it can dictate salaries and the unions, you know, I like to think it, we're not ready yet. I, I think Bernie, there, he didn't have enough tentacles. There aren't enough leftists in our government, in our administrative state yet. But when we get enough leftists in our government, they can support a leftist president or a leftist House of Representatives that will use our regulatory powers to clean up the Teamsters the way they did in the 60s, to clean up the AFL-CIO and say to Richard Trumpka, take your six-figure salary and put it where the sun don't shine. You're not going to make any more than the highest-paid member of your union. You're not going to get six figures. You're going to represent your workers. Anyway, to be continued. Yes, and all I can say to that is, you know, here's to Keith Ellison 2024, huh? Yeah. Okay. Thank you, Professor Marianne, Parks Commissioner, Aurora, Illinois. Let us now go to Denton, Texas, where Professor Mike Steinell was standing by. He is standing by. And you have a song for me. Is that correct? I do. Did you get it? I, if you can vamp, I can find it. How yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll make small talk with you while I look for it. Okay. We How, can do that. You can multitask. Hang on. Bernie Ho Baby Cat is uh, upset because I won't let her make fun of my daughter on the show. Is that in the chat? Yeah, she sent me a note. I'm looking for your email. Okay. Bernie Ho Baby Cat. She has your email? You, yeah. yeah. She, said, she wrote a couple of jokes at my daughter's expense like, your daughter's about as much fun as shit-flavored dental floss and other Ooh, things like that. Ouch. And I th- so I said to my daughter, <laughs> I think that's funny if I read these. You come on the show, and I read these to you. She says, I don't think it's funny. So now Bernie Ho Baby Cat is pissed off because I'm honoring my daughter. Well, I'm honoring my daughter's wishes. And not you are. You're a good father. Well, I'd rather read these insults. <laughs> What's wrong with you, David Feldman? Because it's funny to insult your daughter on a, on a show. <laughs> but I've, I'm told it's... Uh... Hey, by the way, I brought this just to show you how lovable Mickey Mouse is. I don't know if anybody can see that. Oh, 
that is weird. It's not. Well, you know what? I don't think you can show it. Isn't that trademarked? We still. Good Lord, it's not showing this thing. It's, oh, that's, got a, that's the I'm power of. The, that's the power of Disney. You know, my, my uh, green screen thing is really acting up. Check this out. Check this out. Uh, I'm going to turn it off. And uh, actually, I'm turning it on. See, now, I. <laughs> yeah, am I smoking dope? But this is uh, Bob Chappick, who heads Disney. And look at him. He's got... I, I can't see it. There it is. There's Mickey. Can you see that? Mickey? Yeah. yeah. Bob Chappick. Yeah, Bob Chappick with Mickey. You were pretty hard on Mickey Mouse last week. No one likes Mickey. Nobody... Does, do, do you think Mickey Mouse... Do you think any kid ever said, put on a Mickey Mouse cartoon? I've been to Disneyland. They run up to Mickey. They run up to Miss Mickey because... There's star for entertainment, and they're on a sugar high. But kids don't like <laughs> kids don't like. Mickey. They want the they want the Snow White and the Goofy. Yeah, nobody laughs at Mickey Mouse. Did you ever laugh at Mickey Mouse? I don't think I ever did. Nobody laughs. He was there. He was the straight man of the of the deal. Maybe you ever thought of that? Maybe he was the straight man. Hey, I got a I have a, an observation. Okay. I haven't done it recently, but when you introduce, uh, do you hear the echo? I have the. It's how you sound good today. Okay, Tex Zimmerman's in the other room watching, and it's it's a. Uh, um, by the way, Tex Zimmerman has a gig that's going to stream. This is my Dylan band, Tex Zimmerman and his All Star Review, featuring Rosanna Eckert. She also sings in that, and we are going to do a, a Wednesday night thing at that same club through the Musicians Union. Um, Oh, gosh, the 12th, uh, May 12th. I'll, I'll remind the, the listeners, and uh, it's going to be fun. It's going to be great. Um, what was I talking about? Oh, I, I'm almost when you introduce When you introduce the, the Reverend Barry Lynn, you always go, and now let's go to the Reverend Barry Lynn standing by in Washington, D.C. for 25 years. You know, and, and you <laughs> You go into, for 25 years, he was the executive secretary. But, you know, you pause after that, and it sounds like he's been standing by for 25 years. Yeah, I like to think that my show is so important <laughs> somebody would sit in the green room for 25 years. I listened to Thursdays. I finally uh, did the whole thing. Uh, all nine hours. hours? I did all nine hours. Wow. I, I, uh, I, uh, I did part of it uh, laying in bed last night trying to get to sleep. It worked. And, uh, <laughs> That's why I do it. <laughs> and then I did it on my walk. If you don't fall asleep listening to my show, your money back. Something's wrong. You get your money back. You get your money back. You want to talk about the song? Because I have a problem, and it's a it's a big problem. So I'm a I'm a, I'm in a bind with big tech because I I wrote these novels. You know, we've talked about my novels. I'm on novel number three. The the audio is all recorded. It's called Saving Charlie Parker. It's historical fiction, which I had to write. I had to write a disclaimer, and that was kind of tough, you know, because it's based on the life of Charlie Parker, but I take a lot of liberties, like, um, you know, uh, and there's dialogue that never existed, so I have to, and there's people that didn't exist ever that are in it, but there's a lot of people that did, so... Mm -hmm. I was I was happily I happily read about a month ago as I was halfway through it that uh, dead people can't sue you. Did you know that? Dead people can't sue you. 
No, you cannot. Even the heirs of dead people cannot go after you. That's why those tell-all books are so. Uh, you know, the minute right. somebody's gone, they 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 can talk about them. But no, you can't. You can't. Um, it's pretty much ironclad. Maybe we should talk to the the Reverend Dar- Barry Lynn, who is a. Uh, but you know how I know you're absolutely right, uh, Kevin Spacey. Did you read about all oh, Kevin Spacey's accusers? No, what about him? Well, there's been a spate of... Oh, yeah, I've, I've heard about him, yeah. But there's been a spate of about three men, individual lawsuits, who sued Kevin Spacey for sexual assault, and they all died. And Whoa! Yeah, and you, they cannot sue from the grave. Yeah, yeah, you cannot. Not even the heirs. Right. You know, which Doesn't is kind of weird. Fair. So anyway, I've written these these books, and I'm. I wonder if Kevin Spacey can sexually assault them now. Yeah, I think it's cool. Yeah, totally cool. Okay, <laughs> screen light. What a bad guy. guy! What a bad guy, Kevin Spacey. Yeah. And Scott Rudin. You read Scott Rudin? Oh, I read that article. Scott Rodent. Scott Rodent. What a piece of human excrement. Hey, did you watch the Oscars? No, but you know the thing about Scott Rudin is it's it's. Stunning how it took an investigative article in the Hollywood Reporter for his monstrosity to come out. He was dealing with the most powerful people in Hollywood and Broadway, and nobody is like Harvey Weinstein. Nobody, nobody would come forward and say it's horrible. You know. Do you yeah. know who got the Irving Fallberg Humanitarian Award? Uh, Scott Rudin. No, but almost. Tyler Perry. Non-union Tyler Perry? Non-union Tyler Perry. The one who dishonored the Writers Guild and exactly built Tyler Perry Studios in Atlanta, Georgia, where sometimes it's union, sometimes it's not. And he fired the writers that were trying to unionize. Of course, they, they, do, they weren't up to his, they weren't writing stuff he liked. Well, he took in uh, Prince Harry and Meghan Markle. So he did. That's oh, pretty that's humanitarian. There you go to take in the royal family. So I thought if you were watching that, you'd be screaming at the TV. I couldn't believe it. And uh, I was, I actually, um, I was a little concerned that the music was that Questlove, who I did Questlove, that he was. Doing like they had a DJ, you know, for the deal. I, I called the head of the uh, International Union, my friend Ray Hare, who's been on your show. Yes. And would like to come back. Great. Um, and um, I said, "Where? what's with the music? There was no live music. So, well, we, we did, it was all pre-record and everybody got paid. Everybody who, you know, I had, I have quite a few friends who've done that gig for, for years and, uh, you know, it's a it's a it's it's a big money gig, you know, but um, they they did that. Um, did you see that? Uh, you you didn't watch it, huh? I I wish I had. Well, I mean, life it is was, so short. Why well, I don't understand how people would sit through that nonsense. Yeah, but it was such a tra- it's, It was so bizarre. You know how they announced people the winners, and there was a sparse crowd, and sometimes the. <laughs> 
the, the, the applause would die down before they got to the stage. It was like a high school awards ceremony. That's my stand-up. I would say thank you and good night. And between the time of my putting the microphone back in its stand and my turning right to walk up the stage, they're done clapping. Could never get, I could make an audience laugh. I you could know, make I an audience yeah. howl. Yeah, but I could never get them to love. I couldn't get them to love me. Yeah, well, it's kind of like women. I can make them laugh. We love you, David. We all live. And I can't get the. I just can't get that. You know. I anyway. Go ahead. I interrupted you. I'm sorry. No, it was very. It was. It was very uncomfortable. And I thought of you. I thought, man, we need David's applause thing. (laughs) (laughs) And I think. I think later on in the night they started adding applause because it was. Also, they, they, it was random, but at, you know, usually when they announce, they go through the nominees. There's applause for each one, but on some of the uh, <laughs> some of the uh, categories, and maybe they were told not to applaud. There was no applause, you know, and it was just dead air. They'd announce them, and then and then the winner is. I always and, think they should have uh, applause during the in memoriam section. Oh. Like, applaud to the person <laughs> you're most glad for being dead. You know, Ray Hedge. That's talk- terrible. I That's know. Terrible. I know. Uh, Shame on you. I, I wrote on the Emmys uh, uh, and the Oscars, and I one of the things I pitched was, why don't we do an in memoriam for next year? These are the people we hope are in the in. Uh, it'd, be, it'd be fun to do like a, a um, one for. Uh, Cartoon characters and have mm-hmm. <laughs> right have them have them aged, you know, maybe with a, a knife through their, you know, or, or one guy with a, a syringe out of his arm, dopey with a syringe <laughs> hanging out of his arm. You know, Playboy magazine did. They used to do the jazz. They used to do jazz uh, readers polls, and there's one, and I found the issue online. Where it was, it was, um, it was the dead, the dead musicians' polls, and it had all these. It was a big band, and Charlie Parker was there, and they were all slumped over. <laughs> Jimi Hendrix was, he was laying this on half Playboy or hustling? Playboy. This was. Oh man, I don't know. Are you confusing your hustler with your Playboy? <laughs> I think it was Playboy. It was. I, but um, oh, or, or was it? Was it uh, Rolling? It was Rolling Stone, I think. Oh. It was Rolling Stone. No, no, no. I know what it was. National Lampoon. There ah, it was National okay. Lampoon. Right. And they did. They did the thing. It's in the seventies, and and was it was the Dead Musicians Poll. Now speaking of unions, yes. we've talked about this on the show. The whole purpose of the Academy Awards was to prevent Hollywood from going union. Uh, Louis B. Mayer, the head of MGM, was using his uh, movie studio crew to build his new home in Malibu. And he had labor problems. They, they thought, this is what does this have to do with making movies? You're forcing us to build your home in Malibu. And there were union troubles. So they invented the Oscars so there would be no solidarity. They wanted to divide, divide and, and conquer. conquer. Yep. Yeah, that's good. 
And so it's an anti-union conceit. It really is. The idea was if we have an award show, then the actors will compete against one another and there'll be less solidarity. You know, there was a really interesting moment last night when they, they first of all, it's interesting, they did not have m many bits. It's, it's like there was no, there was very little humor. Usually you would, they would have, I'm sure you wrote many of the things that we laughed at, but um, there wasn't hardly any of that. They all came out, all the presenters came out and gave little testimonials about their parents taking them to the, it was sort of, I read that it was kind of Soderbergh's vision to come out and everybody talk about why they love the movies. But wasn't he retiring? Didn't he quit movies? Didn't he say he was going out of the business? Well, but he did, he did, he directed uh, and produced the uh, the Oscars last night. But um, with no host. And, the and, last and nothing was offensive. Nobody got offended, I hear. There were no insults or anything, but yeah. th this is great. Toward the end, about 10 minutes from the end, I don't know if they needed filler, but Questlove got his friend, the rapper, I'm afraid, I can't remember his name, and they came out and they did like a name that tune thing. And they only got two done, but the first one, I can't remember, the star that... Uh, uh, African-American, beautiful, young African-American woman who was kind of feisty, and I'm sure I should know who she is. But anyway, they played Purple Rain. <sighs> and first of all, the, okay, what is that song? Purple Rain. Who's the artist? Oh, Prince. Prince. Yeah. Okay, here's, here's your choices. Oscar winner, Oscar nominee, are not nominated. You know? And <laughs> she goes, she thinks about it, she goes, not nominated. And the guy says, you're absolutely really. And, she, and then she goes, well, that's about right. Meaning like this is what this thing is about, you know. Then they go to Glenn Close and they play this song from school days. I didn't know it. It was a, and, and she named, you know, this was set up. She named the rap artist. She named that it was from school days. She I'm sure they fed her that I can't imagine Glenn Close being, you know, like a hip hop uh, devotee, devotee, right. but uh, maybe she is. Who knows? But I thought, well, that's a setup. That's like that Carson joke, you know, for uh, Doc Simpson. Looks like when he's got that coat, <coughs> looks like Walt Disney threw up all over him. Such a great joke. <laughs> yeah, it is a great joke. But you know, somebody wrote it for him. So yeah. now, what, what is this behind you? It says Jeff. All Bezos. right. Well, this the song is about. I'm trying to get these books published, and I'm running into like. Amazon is everywhere I go. Um, and so the name of the song is Amazon Hell. And the first line is, uh, Big Tech's got me in a bind. So I started doing some research about Big Tech, you know. And uh, this is what these guys are worth. Jeff Bezos, $194 million. Billion. He, billion, I'm sorry. Billion. The wife didn't Elon, get that much. Elon Musk, $177 billion. Bill Gates, $132 Larry Ellison of Oracle, $100 billion. Mm. Mark Zuckerberg, $109 billion. Lauren Powell Jobs, that's uh, Steve Jobs' widow, bad $20 person. billion. They're all bad, including Lauren Powell they are Jobs. Bad. They are bad. I'll, I'll tell you about Lauren Powell Jobs in a second. Cause Jack Dorsey is only $14 billion, slacker. And Tim Cook. Now, you see, Tim Cook... $1.3 billion. And you've told me that instead of Amazon, I should do Apple Books. And this might be the tipper, because that guy needs some money. 
He's only got one point three billion. Only one point three billion. What? I mean, that's that's that, that's embarrassing, isn't it? Especially with all that slave out? labor, and you're only worth one point three billion dollars. How can you go out in public if that's all he's making? Unbelievable. I couldn't find it. The big article in the New York Times about all these companies that lost so much money and still paid their CEOs like millions this year. You know. Yeah. Um, well, that's what, that's what happened. We bailed out the banks in 2008. And a month later, they started paying their idiot executives like billions in bonuses. Lauren Powell Jobs. Okay, tell me about her. A Democrat. Biden supporter gave to Pete Buttigieg. She did not give to Bernie Sanders. She runs the, I think it's called the Emerson something something collective. She wants to save journalism, right? Okay. She, you know, she's part of big tech, which has destroyed journalism. So she gotcha. underwrites uh, the Atlantic Monthly. And I believe Axios, the Atlantic Monthly, is a pretty good magazine. Yes, it is. They do good, good so, uh, investigative research. Yeah, yeah. And and she has what it says here twenty point two billion dollars. Yeah. And she saved Atlantic Monthly. And then I read about budget cuts, and they're laying people off. Oh yeah. You know she like I thought. I thought this is capitalism saving a magazine. You've got twenty point two billion dollars, Lauren Powell jobs, and they have to lay off people at the Atlantic Monthly. This is her idea of philanthropy. Yeah. Why not? Why don't you know the wealth inequity? Why don't we tax? Why don't we? Well, we need to take their money away from them. But even even that, I mean, why why aren't more people like even Trump supporters? Why doesn't this just drive them crazy that there's this much wealth? About lottery, the lottery and gambling. What what has happened with the lottery and gambling is it reinforces the myth of the American dream that you can get lucky and you can make millions of dollars. And then leave it to your idiot kids. That's what that's what gambling well, has done to the American people. They identify with their oppressors. Yeah, that's why gambling is a sin. I read, I read uh, years ago that that often conservative Republicans who are below, you know, not poverty but b- lower middle class, they relate because they assume that they're going to be. Millionaires at some point, you know, if they just play their cards right, which is, uh, it's, uh, well, we know that hasn't worked out, hasn't it? Right, and they're and they're fed the lie that Jeff Bezos is creative, not a monster. You know what I did? I did. I watched CNBC um, because they actually have, you know, just see what's going on with the economy, and uh, a couple of guys were talking about. Early on in Jeff Bezos' career, uh, he sat down with all these guys like uh, Jobs and uh, Bill Gates and blah, blah, blah. Anyway, there's this, some, this is probably apocryphal, but they, they had a meeting and they all, all left just marveling at how, how smart Jeff Bezos was. You know what the median salary at, at uh, Amazon is? Nope. 28000 a year. Hmm. 
You know what the median salary at, uh, I read this, uh, I couldn't believe it, at Facebook is? Nope. It's over 200000 a year. That's the median. Now, Facebook doesn't have drivers right. and pickers. They mostly have engine, well, you know, people doing stuff on computers. But right. I still thought that was, you know, remarkable. Why didn't why didn't Occupy why did Occupy really take hold? Two thousand eleven. Yeah. What what happened with that? It seemed like that was going someplace. It did. It gave us Bernie in two thousand sixteen. Yeah. But didn't get over the cliff. I, I disagree with you. I think Occupy gave us Bernie. More Americans are members of the DSA and. Medicare for all finally entered the lexicon. Income inequality. Nobody talked about income inequality until Occupy. But it's gotten worse since then. Yes. It's gotten worse in 10 years. Yes, yeah. it has. Yes, it has. You know, but it's, but it's, it was it's, it's not allowed. You weren't allowed to talk about income inequality. But you're right. It has gotten worse. My hand's disappearing. In the, yeah. In the it has gotten worse. Look at that. Yeah. The problem yeah. is... Income inequality will get just a little bit better under Biden, and the the, the influencers will keep their mouths shut about it. We'll get that fourteen hundred dollars, you know, maybe every year. That'll yeah. do it. That'll about do it. Yeah. Are you happy with this? Biden? A hundred days. We're coming up on a hundred days. Well, I mean, uh, compared to the alternative that we were faced, right. you know, the binary choice, absolutely. Yeah. You know, it'll be interesting to see with this Afghanistan thing, how that works out. You know, there was a lot of, uh, Christoph said, a big headline in the Sunday Review, this is a terrible idea. But sometimes terrible ideas work out pretty good. Because he's yeah. worried about the women. I guess. I don't know. I didn't read it. I just, I didn't get that far. I can't, I, I don't really uh, uh, resonate with Christoph. So well, he's great. Nicholas Christoph is great. Really? Yeah, he covers really difficult stories. Okay, well, lately, I've, are you talking, is your No, I'm serious. Your, yeah. I, I think Nicholas Christoph covers... The really hard stories, the, the ones you don't want to read because they're yeah. about, like, the, the plight of women in third world countries. And, yeah, he's a great writer. Okay, I will, I will, I will adjust my attitude. Are you, are you confusing him with David Brooks? No. Okay. No, I feel like he's to the right of David Brooks. Nicholas Kristoff? Yes. Am I thinking of the wrong guy? Are you thinking of Thomas Friedman? No, no, no. I got those three guys figured out. Douthat? Douthat is interesting. I never know where he's really... His his language is kind of uh, dense sometimes, and I go like, what did he say? Because right, he's a conservative. <laughs> he said what he meant. You go, oh... <laughs> so he has to obfuscate. Oh, I want to take that test you took. That yeah. was fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. I'm a little more conservative than than uh, I thought I was. Really? Yep. But you're to the left of Bernie. I'm to the left of Bernie. But I'm a little... There were a couple of things where I went, eh, You need eh. a t-shirt that says that. I'm to the left of Bernie. <laughs> 
I just wish we could get people on our side. I need to talk to more lawmakers to get them to articulate what they should be saying. I'm stunned by how we have Democrats, influential Democrats, who are afraid of talking about big government. I was talking to some yeah. pretty influential people, and they were saying, "Well, you know, you don't want the government to get too big. You, you got to go for the, you got to swing for the fences and explain why big government is much better than big business." Yeah, well, you know, they're all in the same business. Republicans, all of them are. They're, they're in the politics business, and it thrives on conflict. It doesn't really thrive on getting things done. By the right. way, there's 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 a guy running already for um, the congressional seat here. Uh, this adds up uh, every day. I, I can't remember his name, but he's he's a you know solid Trump. He he cites Trump, and he's going after the wall. You know, immigration. So it's it's really saddening that that's starting. Yeah, I was soon. talking to Mark Savasco. He's uh, Ted Lou's chief of staff. Great guy, Ted Lou. He was on today, right? Yeah, we had a great conversation. That. We don't have the problem that the Democrats have is we are the party of big government. Bill Clinton said the government, the the era of big government is over. F you, right. Bill Clinton. He should have been selling us on big government. Big government is Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security, food stamps, the police, fire departments, the people who keep you safe and fed, the, the FTC, the FCC, the Justice Department that investigates the cops who are killing innocent black men. Big government. But even the Democrats are against big government, and we need to reorient ourselves and start pitching the idea of big, big government that hires and fires. And when you describe the advertisements you see, the only, you know, Microsoft, every commercial you see on television is an advertisement against big government because it's saying, hey, corporate America is doing this. You know, Shell Oil is fighting climate change. Right. And Pfizer is giving, you know, if you can't afford your chemo, Pfizer can make a deal with two out of three million people. And everybody's, ah, oh, isn't co uh, corporate America's great? Why is big mean government being so bad to Pfizer and hum Humana and Anthem? They all day long. You're, you're, you're fed the steady diet of how great corporate America is. Who's singing the praises of big government? Nobody. And, 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 and when the candidates run for office, they spend four to five billion dollars an election cycle on advertisements that belittle government, that they put down the opposition. They put down government. Nobody is speaking, singing the praises of our government. We're so allergic to the government selling itself to the American people because that's construed as propaganda. Right. You know what? A little pro-government propaganda would be a nice thing. The, you know, the post office, folks, the VA, yeah. somebody has to sing the praises of big government. I'd rather yeah. have big government take care of my health 
than Anthem and Humana. And when we have Democrats who are afraid to use the term big government, it's like, Jesus Christ, well, of course we're losing. Our side doesn't even know what it's for. Why can't you say big government is a good thing? They need a publicist for big government. Do you have a publicist, by the way? Yes, that's why I'm the number one podcast in America. No. (laughs) Have you ever had one? Nope. You know, Rosanna has one for her new project, and she's she's telling me I need to get a a publicist, you know, to get you out there. You you know what? Here's the thing I've noticed about publicists. So when I play comedy clubs, the comedy clubs have publicists. Right. So I pull into a town, and I do all the radio stations, and I do the interviews, and I get all this publicity, and... uh, Nobody's interested. You know, if it's, if, if it's a shit product, the, the publicity, all the publicity turns out to be is a warning not to are go to the comedy club. Your, are you denigrating your, your I'm just comedy? saying that, you know, you, publicity, it, it, for me, it was like a warning. Don't go to Acme Comedy this week. Feldman's there. Wait till next week. I love uh, Emil. I was checking him out today. He was talking about, yeah, we all got our micro audiences. <laughs> yeah. Ouch. This is the first time. That's why I love podcasting because this is the first time I've ever had an actual audience, which is a following. We've had a, yeah, I have a little yeah, following. I, I do my best to alienate them and push them away. But uh, Yeah, well, thank you. They don't listen to the show. <laughs> I think people. They, I think that they, they. Well, look at the chat. There, I never read the chat. I can't. My eyes don't work that You're good lucky. to read the chat. I, I really. Uh, I, I do. I don't do well with criticism. Ouch. <laughs> Should we play that song or what? Uh, yeah. So this is uh, about Amazon Hell. That's redundant. You know, it's a. It's harmonically nebulous. And I kind of dug it. Now, what does our, uh, harmonically nebulous mean? Well, you know, um, it's, it's... It sounds it's like something like, you read in the personal ads. I'm looking for a man who's <laughs> harmonically oh, nebulous. Ooh, I like it. Um, no, it's, you know, like you listen to a song, well, that's in this key, but this, this moves around, like, as it's going. And I had a little trouble trying to play the trumpet part with it. I just had to forge ahead in one key. But there's about three keys going on, you know. Okay. okay. All right. Well, this, this is called Amazon Hell. I'm just a 
It's, it's uh, I don't need permission, it's forgiveness, I ask. What is that line? That is genius. Uh, that is, yeah, so well, that song uh, is so great, Professor Mike Steinow. I'm at the end of line back about I don't need permission, it's just But forgiveness. I don't need permission, it's forgiveness, I ask. Wow. <clears throat> I like I liked that, this one, uh, but the more I dig around, the more I knows. It seems to me, it looks like it's owned by Jeff Bezos. <laughs> I, I found a word that rhymes with Bezos, nose. Yeah. The more I nose. <laughs> or stinky toes. I that, could have used the word nose, couldn't yeah. I? That's, a, that's, a, that's oh, an earworm. Shoot. I'm in Amazon hell and it's starting to smell. That's an earworm. You've got your in my head. That one thing is true. I, I wanted to buy some gold-toed sock, gold-toe socks, and I went to the gold-toe website. And you put your stuff in, what you want to buy, and it pops you over to Amazon. It's hard to, you know, I know we're, we're trying to boycott Amazon, but it's really hard. He owns, they own 200 companies, and about 10 of them are publishers, you know, and Audible. And now then I was going to go with Book Baby. It's self-publication. If anybody out there has got any expertise with self-publication, uh, I need it. But, um <clears throat> It's going to go with Book Baby, and then the first thing, our, our partnership with Amazon allows you to do Audible at the same time, you know. 
But I need to I need to have a book that's ebook. I need to do an ebook, print on demand, which very few publishers do. Amazon does it. So in other words, you you just give them the book, and when somebody orders it, my little sister wrote a really good novel, and it's print on demand. You buy it through Amazon. It's print on demand. And then Audible. I think um, this new book, the Charlie Parker book, is going to have uh, a lot of jazz in it. I might make a whole album that goes with it. Oh, know. wow. Yeah. I'm pretty excited about this, this book. Um, it's time travel. I told you about it, didn't I? Time travel? Yes. yes. I have one thing where, where he, he hooks up with these German... He finds a verm. I'll tell you a little bit because you won't have time to read it. But he finds a verm hole, a wormhole in his house. I like a verm hole better. Well, well, he's talking to some physicists in Germany, and and they go, "Oh yes, you have a verm hole. We are very certain." <laughs> and and they said, and then he asked him, "Well, have you ever gone back in time?" And they said, "Well, we we shouldn't tell you, but we." We have, but we did not kill the Hitler baby. <laughs> and I think that's funny that he says Hitler baby, not the baby Hitler. Right. But like, and then he goes, oh, don't, this is a little wormhole humor. <laughs> you got to say humor the right way. So that's, uh, I'm just got some laughs in it, maybe. How many books have you written in the past year? September. I knocked a, one novel out, a novel novella. 45,000 words. It's not a novel until it gets to 50, I found out. And then I uh, immediately uh, fired off another one. That took a little longer. They all have music that I compose, and, and I do audiobooks, too. Audiobooks, is the, for me, is a really good way to edit. Mm -hmm. Read out loud. That, that's what I Richard Nixon everything. said. Richard yeah. Nixon said that the best way to write is to read out loud what you've uh, written. You know, and... And, and, and I always take my writing advice. When it comes to creativity, <laughs> who's a better guru than Richard Nixon? Ah, uh, yeah. I'm not a cook. <laughs> I'm a writer. <laughs> What's the first line? I was born in the house my father built. That's a pretty good first line. Yes. He didn't build it, though. It was a Sears catalog. It was a prefab home. My grandparents had one of those. Yeah. Those are very nice. Speaking of Amazon, Amazon the, place. No, you know, the only difference between Sears and Bezos is the Internet. And he's well, not selling homes. Yeah, he's, that's right. And we could use people selling some homes. I don't, have the, I don't have the Walton lady on there. She's $100 billion. Anyway, she's in the list. But she's not big tech. Uh, she's just evil. They're all evil. Uh... Mike Steinel is a jazz trumpeter, composer, and educator, and he's got two highly acclaimed books, The Essential Elements for Jazz Ensemble and Building a Jazz Vocabulary. There's a third, isn't there? Yeah, Running the Changes is going to be out in November, I hope. And then... Uh, and that's not a mystery. No, that's a jazz book. Right. I actually have another one that came out last... Uh, Essential Elements, uh, book two... Book two, and and you can buy it on. Uh... <laughs> where can you buy them? Hey, you remember Flip Wilson? Yeah, hang on. Where can you buy those books? 
Amazon. Ah, interesting. <laughs> no, you can buy them at Barnes and Noble. You can buy them at Hal Leonard. You can buy them at music stores. Remember well, Cliff Wilson used to do that? Yeah, we're so, like Song and Dance, the, the Mike Steinel quintet yeah, featuring Rosanna Eckert. Where can you buy that? Like, I listen to it on Spotify, but if I wanted to buy it, where could I? <laughs> where? <laughs> well, um, uh, Barnes and Noble. Uh-huh. Yeah, any place that sells music will, you know, you, you can buy it right from the Origin record. Uh, I recently... What's Penders.com? Penders is, uh, well, that, it's a local music store, and they sell all of my stuff. Well, why don't we plug Penders.com? We should. We should have Richard Richard uh, Gore on, who owns that, and that's a, like a, a, you know, uh, uh, that's a business paper, paper stuff, selling paper. Eh, I don't know. There, there it is, Penders. Go to Penders.com. There you go. For all your orchestral needs. You, yeah. can, you can buy sheet music and scores, and I guess you can buy a guitar there, right? You can buy trumpets. No, it's mostly sheet music. Sheet music. Mostly sheet music, yeah. Wow. Well, I was and digital about downloads. Call 800. Let me give them a plug. Okay. Here, let's do this. Call 800-772-5918 and say you want to buy all of Mike Steinel's work, his books. 800-772-5918 and tell them Flip Wilson sent you. What's your Flip Wilson story? Well, I was thinking about the... the, my that second, you know, uh, Essential Elements Volume Two. That's a cheesy way to, to but, but he used to talk about. Uh, there was the interview with uh, uh, about David, you know, little David playing on his harp. You know, yeah, he, he had three records. The first one was called Jam David. No, should I screwed it up? <laughs> first one, was, little David plays his harp. Second one was little David plays his harp part two, and the third one was Jam David. <laughs> I screwed the whole joke up. Yeah. Don't worry about it. Yeah, okay. Nobody's listening. Yeah, nobody's listening. Uh, all right. We'll talk to you next week. Yeah, you want me to try to get Rosanna Eckert on? Uh, whatever you want. Yeah, yeah, okay. okay. She's got a song in her. we got the thing coming up. Good. All right. Thank you, buddy. Thank you. Uh, I will be listening tomorrow to the show. All right. The, what is this? The New York Times is canceling op-eds. Paper says it's renaming them to guest essays to be more inclusive after ex-editors Barry Weiss and James Bennett were driven out by colleagues for not being woke enough. The New York Times says it will retire the term op-ed. I see. But they're still going to run Douthat, Friedman, and columnist Brooks, David Brooks. Uh, Okay. That is our show. This was a good one. This was a great show from beginning to end. There wasn't one clam, as Buddy Rich would say. Is Dan... Dan, it's not fair to Dan. It's late. Are you still here, Dan? No. Are you? Hang on. Warren. Hello, Warren. Hey, David. Where are you calling from? Brooklyn. Ah. 
Um, I just wanted to, there is a book that um, talks about big government. It's called American Indies by Hacker and Pearson. Okay. Um, are you familiar with winner-take-all politics? They also did that one. They also, do, um, their newest one is called Let Them Eat Tweets. So, um, yeah. It's pretty it's remarkable, isn't it, that uh, you have Democrats who will not preach the virtues of government, even though that's supposedly what the Democrats are about, government, big government. Why, why is it so hard to sing the praises of government? Because the Democrats got a taste for the money and they liked it. The only reason you're safe is because of your government. True. only reason you're safe. It's the government that educates you, the, the schools the public universities, the NIH funds all the research into new drugs, not Big Pharma. It's the NIH, the CDC. It's your government that keeps you safe, and nobody sings the praises of the post office, the miracle of the post office, the administra yeah. the, this administrative state that Steve Bannon and our Supreme Court want to disembowel this administrative state of about 3.2 million federal employees. Nobody is making more than, nobody's making $200,000 a year working for the federal government. Nobody's working on commission. No agency head makes 8,000 times more than the average worker. That's your government. That's your government. It's an amazing piece of machinery that that builds roads and bridges and provides health care to those who can't not, not well now, but you know Medicaid, Medicare, Social Security. That's your government. Medicaid, Medicare, Social Security, food stamps, the post office. That's your government. Yeah, 450, uh, 450 billion packages a year that the, that the post office delivers. Yeah. There's a number for you. You know how many UPS and FedEx do combined? About 30 billion. And, and, then, and they rely on the post office for the, the rural areas that they refuse to administer to. Yeah. Why can't we get our effing politicians in the Democratic Party to sing the praises of government? The, the yeah. government is the manifestation of our Constitution and Declaration of Independence. It's what we are as a people. It's a reflection of who we are as a people, not the flag, not the military. The government. And if you don't like our government, you don't like our country because that's who we are. This demonization of the government is just a ruse perpetrated on us by the richest 1% who don't want to be policed, who don't want to be regulated, and don't want to be taxed. It's outrageous that, that, that we fall prey to this, this right-wing propaganda. Government good, corporation bad. Not they're equally bad and good. No, no, no. Corporations 
bad. Corporations have one responsibility to maximize profits for their shareholders. They think. Actually, they have a responsibility to the community. They have a responsibility to their community, but the myth since the 80s is that a corporation only has to maximize profits. Well, if you have to maximize profits, then you are not, you're not, a, you're not good. Government doesn't have to maximize profits. It it's supposed to treat our tax dollars as something sacred and not to be wasted. There's no comparison between government and corporations. Corporations, evil. Government, good. There's some bad actors in the government, but there's way more transparency and way more accountability in government than there is in, in, in corporate America. But we're fed this steady diet of pro-corporate propaganda. Everything you see on broadcast television is pro-corporate propaganda. And you, should, you, should, you, should, you should read um, um, Captured by, by White House. That explains a lot. Sheldon Whitehouse? Sheldon Whitehouse. From Rhode Island. U.S. Attorney from, from Rhode Island. Senator yes. Whitehouse. I saw, him, yeah, I saw him speak at uh, Ralph Nader's Tort Museum before the pandemic. I will do that, sir. Let us go now to Tom Weber, who I think wants to tell us about the city of Newark. Hmm. Oh, actually, no, the reason I'm, uh, I, I wanted to see if you didn't overstate or misstate uh, your argument here about government versus corporations. I, I think you're, I think to clarify, I think the way that you're using government, you're talking more the social welfare state because we also have the CIA, the NSA, we got the military, that's government too. Yeah, that's government waste. Well, I just mean not everything in the government is good. <laughs> I'm just saying that... Uh, well, who does the CIA and the State Department serve? Corporations. What's evil about our government is the stuff it does for corporations. The wars it fights. Fair enough, but I, I'm just saying I think you need... I don't know. I think I think the use the, your use of government has to be a little bit more nuanced. Otherwise, it would be misconstrued. I'm afraid as to, as being totalitarian and no, 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 no. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that what you're talking about in terms of government being good and the things that it does for us is the is more to do with the social welfare state and dealing with the common good. Yeah, um, but you know, I don't see good in the NSA and the CIA uh, for the most part. Or the Pentagon. For the Pentagon, yeah. But there's, you know, there's a Department of Education. There's a Department yeah. of okay. Agriculture that should be doing a better job subsidizing school meals. But you know, you have the FDA monitoring our food and drugs, and you have yeah. the F the Federal Trade Commission which 
you know, keeps is supposed to keep corporations honest. You have the Justice Department. I mean, the 3.2 million federal employees who work in the administrative state, most of them don't work over at the State Department or the CIA or the NSA. They're they're doing work, you know, in the Department of Energy, uh, monitoring our nuclear weapons. Uh, the EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency, OSHA, the Department of Labor, the Department of Transportation, which sets you know fuel economy standards, the Department of Interior, which is supposed to protect us from greedy oil companies and frackers, and HUD, Housing Urban Development, Health and Human Services. I mean, you know, when you look, I, I, I'm pretty sure that when you look at most of the jobs that are done in Washington, D.C., these are good people doing the Lord's work. Yes, I, I'm, I'm not disagreeing with you in general. I was just saying I think that we have to clarify what we mean when you're talking about the government and whatnot. The other thing that you're saying that's very vitally important that we have to do is we've got to figure out a way of getting the separation between corporations and their hegemony vis-a-vis the government. Yeah. Uh, if we can work that out, then we're then we'll be in good shape. Yeah. And what about Newark? Where Audible is headquartered, by the way. Uh, what about Newark? You said the police there set a record. Yeah. Well, they uh, they went a year without any. Now this article that I sent you was three months old, so I, I don't know what's happened since then. But they did apparently some reform. Uh, I didn't see in the article all the specifics. I would like to have heard what, what exactly they did. Although I did see a uh, video clip, I think, with the uh, uh, the head of the police department there, I believe, uh, Talking, uh, talking about the training that they had done. Well, anyway, the big point is is that they had had a, as I understand it, a horrible record in terms of uh, uh, police brutality and deaths and whatnot. And after this training that they underwent, they went a full year without one shot being fired by an officer at all. So my big point is is that here we have an illustration, a real-world illustration, how uh, police reform and training uh, and de-escalation can really work to turn things around. Right. So I think, I think it would be great to try to contact somebody within that uh, community there that could speak to that so that we could learn more about what exactly they did yeah. Oh, yeah. And the uh, Newark and Camden, I believe, Camden, New Jersey, actually got rid of their police department. I think Camden at one time was a failed city. I think it just it wasn't working. And I, I think, uh, I'll have to look into it, that they got rid of, they literally, fought, I think they literally fired all their police officers, rehired them, and redefined what policing is, and this is a, a, uh, I believe, an African American city that had a history of problems with the police, and I think 
they started from scratch with their police department. Yeah, and I, that that idea of rehiring is something that I think needs to be done nationwide. I don't care what the history of any police department, good how good or bad it is, we should just have some kind of initiative where this is what's going to be done with some kind of licensing and training program and that there is no guarantee that anybody's going to make it uh, in and start from scratch that way. And um, I don't know who exactly within this community brought the idea up, or maybe I heard elsewhere. Time and pool. Uh, could be, but tying licensing up so that uh, I think that they would have to buy Malpra the equivalent to malpractice insurance. That's not the right term, but um, what would be the right term there, David? Um, liability insurance? Liability insurance. And uh, that, that the cost would be so prohibitive uh, that they would be, you know, uh, they would be reluctant to use this uh, willy-nilly, any kind of uh, force or any kind of... Uh, obviously, uh, gun violence and whatnot. Tom in Portland warned that when a city like Camden fires all their police officers and then rehires, you run into the problem of debathification. De what? Debathification. This is what uh, Kissinger's guy, I forgot his name, when he sent the elite Republican guard home, in Baghdad in 2003. So all the police, the, the, the soldiers went home and became quote-unquote terrorists. It's the de getting rid of the bath, bathists who were loyal. Well, to you're saying that uh, we run the danger that we end up with a uh, an opposing force, that the, all the bad ones end up coming back and then organized with some kind of underground resistance or, or something like that? I'm just saying there's a thin line between the police and the people being arrested. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm just saying that the police turn a blind eye to crime every day, and they turn a blind eye to either their own crimes or the crimes committed by their fellow officers Therefore, policing in America is a criminal enterprise. It's made up of criminals because not just, you know, through the sin of omission, it makes you a criminal. You know, it wasn't just Derek Chauvin who murdered George Floyd. It was the three or four other officers who committed the sin of omission. So, but the sin of omission that you're talking about is really just indicative of the larger culture. Yeah, but the police culture—it's it, a—it's a crime. It's a criminal organization because of that. Because your partner is on the take. What are you going to do? Mm -hmm. Who's he hurting? Well, society. But I got to work with this guy. I'm not going to turn him in. That makes the that makes the, the cop who doesn't turn in his partner a criminal, and and so it's all the enforcement is just individual discretion. I choose 
to pull you over and not you because it's it's up to me what to enforce and what not to enforce. Mm-hmm. So what do you suggest uh, yourself if you could wave your magic wand? What would you suggest would be the remedy for that? Uh, big government, uh, I believe that more federal dictates on policing, better training. Uh, we're not hiring the right people. It's been said that if you want to be a cop right now, you're probably the wrong person to be a cop. I think we need more accountants, like the FBI hires accountants and lawyers and then gives them a badge and a gun. I'd rather see accountants, local accountants, patrolling local businesses uh, than the streets. I think more crime, more violent crime is committed in office parks than on the streets. I don't see the need to keep pulling over young African-American males for busted taillights. I think there's some uh, doctors, dentists, lawyers, uh, business owners who should be policed uh, much harder than unarmed black men driving with an air freshener on their rearview mirror. So you're, t- you're, if I hear you correctly, you're saying that uh, a large portion of policing needs to really be uh, dealing with white-collar crime. Or white people. That needs to be a major focus of it, right? Well, not a major focus. I just think that uh, the police are not policing uh, African-American communities in America. They're an occupying force. They tend not to live in South Central, they just police South Central the way, you know, our soldiers policed Baghdad. I'd like to see local police. I'd like to see police who live in the neighborhood. I'd like to see uh, less punitive justice, and we talk about restorative justice. And then uh, the the cops are the cause of problems for the African-American community, for, you know, for the most part. And then there's the issue of police chiefs. We have a problem with police chiefs in this country who uh, have uh, cowards working for them who are convinced that every time they pull over a, a black driver, they're going to get shot, even though fewer than 100 police officers get shot each year. Uh, but we have these cowards with guns pulling over African-Americans. It's the role of the police chiefs to do what they did uh, when Clinton was president and stand behind a Democratic president who wants to establish an assault weapons ban. That was one of the few things that Bill Clinton did that was right. He brought in the police chiefs and said these assault weapons have to get off the street. So... And we got a 10-year assault weapons ban because of that, because the police chiefs knew that their officers were terrified of all these guns on the street. Uh, You know, you have to address racism that's rampant in our police departments and, and the white nationalists and the separatists. But until you change that, it might be a good idea to get the guns off the street, and, and and as long as we're into fighting wars we can't win, legalize drugs, and start arresting people for owning guns. 
outlaw these guns. There's no reason anybody should have a handgun. Believe it or not, you're old enough and I'm old enough to remember this conversation. Nobody should have a handgun. When, when Bobby Kennedy was shot, when Martin Luther King was shot, up until about Jimmy Carter, the rational people talked about eliminating handguns. Forget the assault weapons ban. There were, I think a vast majority of Americans were against handguns. Right. Yes, I agree with you. Nobody should have a handgun. Nobody should have an assault weapon. You want a rifle, you should have to pass some tests, the same way you have to pass tests to drive a car. But if you're collecting guns and ammunition, there's something seriously wrong with your penis and something seriously wrong with your brain. My suggestion is you either get mental health counseling or we lock you up because there's room for 2.5 million Americans behind bars. And I'm all for that. So just empty out the prisons and start arresting the people who are collecting these guns. I agree with everything you said, but I want to roll back just a little bit because, okay, I misconstrued what you were saying when you were talking about accountants. A lot of these police need to be accountants. Let me tell you where my mind went with that. I was thinking about the fact that the greatest crimes to humanity are not being uh, done by poor black folks or just poor people in general. They're being done in uh, with sanctions by corporations in their... Uh, let's, let's go back to uh, an older story, but, but it's just illustrative. I, I used this uh, a couple of weeks ago, I think. But think of Nestle's, and back when they had their thing where they were, they were, uh, uh, they had created the whole infant uh, formula thing, and and then they uh, exported that to third world countries, and then got all of these poor ladies down there uh, uh, dependent upon that, and they killed untold numbers of children, babies. And to me, that is a tremendous crime against humanity. I thought you were talking about embedding police in corporations where they are monitoring that kind of stuff from the inside. That's where my mind went. Well, I I wouldn't mind... uh, I wouldn't mind... Yeah, I would like to see accountants uh, and lawyers, teachers working as police and trying to de-escalate the violence. Nestle sold um, breast milk to uh, midwives in Africa, and their breasts dried up, and then mm-hmm. they couldn't afford the, uh, the, the... And they were told that breast milk is not as healthy as Nestle's. Right. Powdered milk, which is a lie. People, you know, women should be... And nobody went to prison for that. Yeah. This is what I'm talking about. Yeah, yeah. And and I'm just saying that we could could go to more the present in terms of what has been done in terms of fossil fuel industry with pipelines and 
we can go all sorts of different directions, uh, go into the nuclear industry and what's happening there in terms of waste and go many directions where some of our greatest crimes are being committed legally under our nose right here, and we need to deal with that to, to uh, really clean up our system right. and society. Well, you know, Nestle is evil, and people can't understand that. How could Nestle, I think it's a Swiss corporation, how can it be evil? Well, you know, uh, they murdered millions of Africans. I don't know if it was millions, but uh, I don't know how many babies starved to death because they Well, South American, South America, too, and, yep. And they use, uh, Nestle uses child slave labor. Mm-hmm. And they went, they were taken before the Supreme Court, I think, last year. And they were defended by Neil Katyal. He was the former acting solicitor general, Democrat, hero of the... Uh, Russiagate people. You'll see Neil Katyal on MSNBC all the time as a hero who warns us about the dangers of Donald Trump. He's one of the good guys because he's a Obama guy. Meanwhile, he uh, defended Nestle's use of child slave labor. Right. Because everybody, everybody deserves a lawyer, even Nestle. Yeah. Well, child slave labor, you could end up uh, going to a lot of corporations uh, for that. But anyway, I should uh, let other people in here. But uh, right. thanks for your time. Thank you, sir. All right. I'll see sure. you Thursday, I hope. You're, you are, by the way, your art, you know, like... You're you're just amazing. The music and the well, music. And, and, and how do people come to meditation and activism, or activism and meditation? Well, it's spirituality and activism, and that is on uh, Wednesday evening. And uh, you know, the, the only way that I know that you can get the uh, links to that is through Discord. Otherwise, maybe uh, maybe we should have Dan post that uh, in the future. Right. Um, you know, when he does community billboards. Right. So if there's a hard link for people because there's a specific Zoom for that, it's going you know. Right. Fantastic. Yeah. So anyway, we'd love to have people there. And we've got people from all different stripes when it comes to uh, uh Religious background, you know, uh, I would say that the vast, vast majority of people, unlike me, are not associated with a particular uh, religious tradition, and we uh, we cover the spectrum in terms of uh, belief on through to uh, some people who are agnostic and atheist, but we're working to try to find some common ground right. on that level. I, I think it's going pretty well. Great. You're the best. You're the best. Thank you. Uh, Amen. Yes, that was Warren uh, in Brooklyn.
High praise for a bum from Brooklyn. They call us the bums if you're from Brooklyn. Uh, uh, John Hayes, your hand was raised. Yeah, did you say you know Trayvon Free? Is that the guy? Yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah I, I, I've been to parties with him, and now that he's won an Oscar, he's my best friend. <laughs> well, I've looked him up on IMDb. I did watch the Oscars, by the way. As I he wrote for the, the Daily Show, right? Oh, I don't know. But, oh, actually, I didn't look that much into it. I was just noticing his biography, and this has got to be... Um, you know, it's a mistake on IMDb that maybe he should know about. It mentions that some trivia about him, like something, a screenplay he's developing. He attended Long Beach State, which is where I went to college. Uh, graduated from uh, Dominguez High. Did uh, Steve Martin go to Long Beach State? Yes, he did. Right. He was there, and he worked at Disneyland as a magician after that, hmm. as I recall. Not Harvard, you're saying? Steve Martin didn't Not go to Harvard. Harvard? He went to Cal State Long Beach, just like Interesting. Trayvon Free, and just like uh, the guy who created the X Files, and Steven Spielberg went there for a while and dropped out because he got a job as a director. <laughs> Such interesting original minds that did not go to Harvard, and, mm -hmm. and yet nobody can cite one original mind that came out of Harvard. Go ahead. Yeah, and uh, Francis Ford Coppola's father, uh, sorry, brother, was a professor at Cal State Long Beach as well. Interesting. Yes, but let's all, you know, praise Harvard and spend you know, a billion dollars a year trying to get your idiot kid into Harvard so he can make connections. Well, I agree. So what's the, by the way, IMDb yes. is evil. You know who owns IMDb? Uh, Amazon, right? Yes. So they, and the, the, listen to, the, I mean, I, I don't even want to think about this. So uh, in order for you, IMDb in Hollywood for son as a resume. Yeah, that's why I have a profile on there because you practically have to. People right. Up there, right. Yeah. So, but if there's a mistake. I've had a hard time correcting some mistakes. They kept me as a stunt guy in something, as an actor in something, as something else in something. You know how you correct the mistake? You know how you correct the mistake? Well, I wrote to them numerous times to correct some of them. You have to be a, a member. You have to pay Amazon something like, I don't know, a couple of bucks a month as a member of IMDb to be able to set the record straight about your resume. Well, I did that pre-Amazon, I guess, so thankfully I but didn't But think about that. that. Yes. What, I mean, well, my point is, it's just, it's not, Jeff Bezos, there's nothing, he doesn't do anything good. It's just pure evil because he looks like a deformed, syphilitic <laughs> penis. He must have a pistol, you know, to make up for his lack of a penis hood or whatever. <laughs> he looks like a deformed penis. He looks like something Lorena Bobbitt tossed out her window. <laughs> and and he and he just sits there on the phone with his accountant going, two two more billion and then then I'm then women are gonna want to be with me. Just I just need another two billion. And then, then I'll be a man. It's like a gambling addict in Vegas. You know, just keep rolling and rolling and rolling. He's a homunculus, a troglodyte. He's a disgusting human being. And he should be taxed out of existence. There's no excuse for anybody. This union-busting piece of excrement, Jeff Bezos. $15 an hour to pee in a jar? 
Yeah. So he can watch no, uh, it. So make so he can watch. You know, they have surveillance videos of the female truck drivers peeing in yeah. bottles. That makes Jeff Bezos like semi hard. That's the only thing that makes him semi hard is watching a woman pissing into a bottle. And those drivers aren't teamsters either. That's right. Well, I agree with all this, but my point is the last thing in this trivia thing on this Trayvon Priest profile, it's just a simple, very short last sentence in this trivia. It says, is anti-Semitic. I'm like, what the fuck? What is that doing in there? That can't be right. I don't know really? another guy. Yeah, it's just a simple sentence at the very end. I don't get that. What's that about? Uh, probably he does. So I would assume he doesn't have an IMDb account. Yeah, that's my guess. And Jeff Bezos <laughs> is going, all right, MFR, you're an anti-Semite. Now pay me to get that fixed. <laughs> Oh, I want to do it or do a make your next movie with Amazon, or else we'll uh, keep that trivia piece in there. Boycott Amazon. You don't need to shop on Amazon. Well, you know I don't. I haven't for years. What do you need? What do you, What do you need? To, Whatever you I need, I go right to the source and get it from them. Yeah, or you know, a little uh, impulse control. Well, that too. Yeah, yeah. practice impulse control. I need. These people have an addiction the way Jeff Bezos does, but on a smaller scale, all the Amazon Prime people, they want that extra something. They want it now. i got to have it. got to have it. It's an addiction. You don't need it. Yeah. There's some stuff they need, but too many of them don't need yeah. what they order. And they can wait longer for it. They don't need it the next day. You know what it is, John? We're a loveless people, and nobody sends us presents. So we send ourselves presents. We, we love just buying ourselves presents and we can't wait for it to be delivered and all we do is enjoy opening the box ooh something I wonder what's in it and it's a surprise because you order so much crap you can't keep track of anything so it does feel kind of like I wonder what's in here is, is this the hair dryer I bought myself or, or the box of condoms that I bought myself or the penis pump I bought myself, or the hemorrhoid donut I bought myself. Enough about David Feldman. <laughs> Bezos. Oh, no, Jeff Bezos. Why be self-deprecating? We're, we're loveless. If you want gifts, practice unconditional love on somebody, and you'll get gifts. And get rid of your cats. That's the other reason we're so loveless. Oh, wait a minute now. You're giving, John, I don't stand in judgment. You know me. I, I believe everybody should just live their life. But there's a direct correlation between the increase of pet ownership in America and our lack of compassion for others. Cats and dogs are getting all the love and compassion from humans that we should be giving to other humans. Now, I love cats and dogs. I'm a vegan. And I've had 25 cats seven dogs, everybody should have cats and dogs, but they're not human beings. And when you start dressing up your cats and dogs and buying them clothes and gifts, you should be rounded up and jailed. Well, I don't do that. But okay. I do buy toys. For them to Buying <laughs> toys for a cat and a dog or gourmet cat food. This is why people, I'm being serious, the reason 
the reason people are living on the streets, the reason people we're, we're giving all our love to our pets when we should be giving it to other human beings. It's easier to love a cat and a dog than it is to love a, a filthy, disgusting human being. Human beings, it's, it's heavy lifting loving a human being, and it's cowardice to give your love to a cat or a dog instead of a human being. Yeah. Well, we believe me, I know that because that's what I do. We can do both, just like we can have a $15 minimum wage in Medicare for all. We can do both. I'm telling you, cats are responsible for everything that's wrong. I just, you know, I live in New York City. I watch these people walking their purebreds. And I think, well, that, no, I'm against that kind of crap breeding and unnecessarily creating new beings to be, uh, you know, contributing to the mass of this earth, whether it be human animals or non-human animals. Yeah, we don't need to do that. They, they can't win the argument. You can't win the argument against veganism. You can't win the argument against Medicare for all. You can't win the argument that Ralph Nader was responsible for George W. Bush. And when I get in the face of a couple, so I don't pile on. I wait for a couple walking a purebred. And I said, I don't mean to interrupt you. I don't mean to pass judgment. But you and your dog are human excrement. This is a purebred, and you people are evil. Don't take that the wrong way, but I'm going to go home and pray for your demise. Because this dog that you're giving all this love to, all that love could be given to a human being. But you're so hateful and greedy with your time and your money that you'd rather channel it all into... This, this pedigree, dog, rotten hell. No, I'm, and I'm not judging you. I'm not trying to make you feel bad. And, and they go, thank you. You're, you're absolutely right. Thank you for straightening me out. They thank me. <laughs> it's a superpower you have. It, it is. People, and I'm not judging them. I'm just, this is a fact. You're, you're hateful. You're incapable of love. So you channel it into this this dog, as opposed to the people who really need your love. Uh, now, did you say rot in hell or Rottweiler in hell? Rottweiler in hell. Yeah. Rottweiler in hell. Now, if these dogs already exist and they're already abandoned, I think that's fine. Like, get them from a shelter because they're they're going to die otherwise, and they're in, in prison basically. So that's what I'm fine with. But yeah, breeding, fuck that. Yeah, and, and the excuse is our son. What about your son? Oh, we need a hyperallergenic dog. And I say, get rid of your son. Get a better son. Go to the go to go to the ASPCA, the Humane Society, and get a shelter animal. And get rid of your son. He's weak. This is this hyperallergenic bullshit. <laughs> you wanted a dog that matched your drapes. You don't. Your son doesn't have an allergy to dogs. Bullshit. It's always my nice son. It's not just a carpet match the drapes. It's just a pet. It's just the second syllable match the drapes. The world would be a much better place if I could police it. I should. I would. I really. Oh, I hear fascists. No, 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 no. It's not. It's benevolent leadership. Okay. I. 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 It takes me three seconds to figure out if somebody's good or bad, and I just. You, 
in prison, you... How great would this country be if we only locked up white men? <laughs> well, I, if it was me, I don't know. How no, I no, no. The, only, you could, the, the law should be, for five years, only white men worth who have a net worth of $50,000 or more can be arrested and, and jailed. Wow. Anybody below that, it's restorative justice. We only lock up white men who who have a, a net worth of $50,000 or more. What would this world look like? I think we'd have some pretty heavy person population, just some different people. I'm not saying to lock up all white men. I'm saying the crimes that white men who are worth more than $50,000 commit, those should come with a prison sentence. They, they get a public defender just like everybody else who's... No, no, I, no, no, no trial. No trial. I can do it. I can do it. Believe me. I love paperwork. I could, I could just... I could just show me the mugshot and I'll tell you whether or not he goes to prison. I, I'm very good at this. I can look at a person and uh, tell you whether or not they belong... Uh, behind bars. <laughs> okay. Okay. All right, I'll see you. Uh, let me... Well, here's somebody I owe an apology to. Hello? Is the name Dan? Yes. Hello? You. Fuck. <laughs> I apologize. I got your email. Thank you. Oh, good. Yeah. All right. All right. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm trying to impress Tom Weber. I want to model good behavior. Okay? Do you accept my apology? Yeah. You read, you read my, if you read my email. I, I know, but I, I, I want to do it publicly because it makes me look good. Yes, uh, sir. Yes, Daddy. No, no, I want to do this to impress Tom Weber, and I want, uh, this is a performative thing where people come away from it going, wow, Feldman really owns, you know, he really owns it. When he makes a mistake, he owns it. What a great guy. And now I'm going to ask you for forgiveness. Do you forgive me? I am on my knee right now forgiving you. Okay, thank you. And I'm about to call you a fucking asshole. Will you forgive me? After I do that? Well, you didn't read the email carefully because there's a certain thing that I need to be called, so you should do that now. What? I don't have your email in front of me. You called me the reason people hate the left. I was projecting. No, that's fine. So, you, But you should just say, hey, here's the reason people hate the left. What the fuck does he have to say? You know, I'm getting angry at you again. You know what I remember? Look, you know what it was? It was something like you said, aren't aren't tickets, aren't uh, traffic tickets a form of violence? And I think it came at the end of a nine-hour show. And, you know, I do keep it, I try to keep it all contained and not lose it, you know? And uh, when you said that, I genuinely thought... You were putting me on, so. No, well, yeah, it's it's, it's a weird it's a weird thing about um, interacting with each other over this 
this forum, you know, like if we're meeting each other somewhere and talking to each other, we can, in, you know, we can discern more from our facial expressions and stuff. But just being online and talking to each other, like irony and sarcasm, those things are really hard to translate over the Internet. Yes. Well, you don't oh, even want to do it in person because David could judge you immediately. If you, uh, <laughs> you you lock, jail, and you might be in jail. Lock him up. Lock him up. All right. Well, here's the, here's the reason I raised my hand, Feldman. Okay. And this has been, um, you know, you've, you've been talking about this a little bit, like it's come up repeatedly, where you talk about um, uh, gover- government taking ownership. Right, like not not of every not of everything, but I'm, I I I think the first step is the government nationalizing failed companies that are necessities and or creating companies to compete with successful corporations and or just creating businesses. Well. Here's the thing. I, I mean, I, I I get where you're coming from, but I think the the idea of the part where you're where you're disconnecting for me is the idea that, like, say when Obama sort of nationalized the auto industry, right? But he didn't. Like, but he didn't. Right. He he didn't. He, he dictated didn't. the terms. He dictated the terms. He said to GM, no bonuses, but he didn't dictate how the unions were going to be treated. He Right, right, right. He he acted like a banker. Right. Like he just kind of stepped in as like a banker. So the solution that you're sort of alluding to and that what you mean to get to, I think, is the idea is that, like, yes, the government would, in the interim, float the company, right? It would keep the company afloat. But ultimately, it would not be government-owned, it would be worker-owned. So that's the point I wanted to make. That's why I raised my hand, because you have been sort of getting into this area of how do we solve this problem when, like, these big companies fail. And, like, I think we can look at it in a lot of different ways, and we can just morally using morality and uh, how we think societies should be formed, we can go through a lot of things. We could say energy, transportation, education, health care. All of these things should be the provision of society, that the collective production of our society should result in fair education, equi- equitable distribution of housing, all of this stuff. So when we get into the point of capitalism failing, which is where you're coming in and saying, No, like, no, and you're the reason people hate the left, but please continue. All right, thank you. <laughs> well, you, you got the you, you Yeah, and, and, and you, you got the image. So here, here's the thing, Dan. You're like 20 steps ahead. I'm talking about, like, recent history a muscular federal government that says 2008 the banks are failing okay we will save capitalism I'm not ready to go I don't think the American people are ready to go full bore Marxism certainly they weren't ready in 2008 in fact there's a new poll out 
that shows 52% of Americans say they're afraid of government getting too big. So there are some political issues uh, that you have to overcome before your vision comes. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay, so I'm talking about, but what I'm talking about is how do you sell uh, a social safety net to the idiots in this country? And I do mean idiots. Well, good leadership, you start with good leadership and uh, Democrats who know exactly what they want and the things that they want are what the Democratic Party should stand for, which is bigger government, larger safety net, uh, regulation, keeping an eye on corporations. In the next 10 years, unfortunately, we're not, I don't believe we're going to get rid of capitalism. Would you agree with that in the next 10 years in America? Um, I, well, I mean, without, I without, a, without uh, it getting really ugly. Is that fair? Well, it's a, it's a loaded question because we have to interrogate the degree, where is, what is capitalism? Like, we don't even, right. we don't know what that is. So, just, so, so let me propose this to you. Uh, you. You want the greatest good for the greatest number of people. How do you get there without losing our civil liberties? Some people think it's Marxism. Other people think it's religion. And I... I have an answer for you. Well, let me give you... Let me let me explain to you what, what I'm trying to... All right, for. Okay. I think the quickest way to elevate the lives of the most people is through a democratically elected government that answers to the people and works for the people. I think that if... 100%. And so ideas like uh, communism or socialism or capitalism uh, will become, you know, up for grabs. But when you talk about a worker-controlled company, how about a citizen-controlled republic where we, we produce good citizens who are educated, civic-minded, who work eight hours a day, and then have time to pursue their interests. Some of those interests include politics, policy, and government. Okay? I don't think that's too heavy a lift. I think, believe it or not, the Republicans are against that, but nobody would admit that. But I don't think, politically speaking, that's a hard thing to sell to the American people. I, I agree. I agree with you. I just, I, I totally agree with okay, you. Okay, so let I me just finish. Let me just finish what I'm saying. Okay, and then I'll, I'll let you respond. I think an easier sell to the American people right now is not overturning capitalism. It's fulfilling the promise of America that has not been kept, and that is democratically elected senators, congresspeople, mayors who are answering to the people, not corporate America. Now, I know people say, well, you've got to get rid of capitalism because capitalism is a cancer and you can't beat, you can't beat this cancer. 
I understand that. Uh, but there is a bill right now that was passed in the Senate, in the House, H.R. 1, which would get rid of gerrymandering, make it illegal for states to make it impossible for people of color to vote. And this country would look really different and would be borderline socialist if we could just get everyone, including, you know, forget the 100 million Americans who don't vote. Forget them. Just the ones who want to vote. If they could vote, we, we would be a ultra-left-leaning country if everybody could vote. You know, a, a minor change like tax day and election day should be the same day and a vacation. Something as simple as that could just change the, the, the political compass of this country. What, what I think the left should focus more on and certainly the Democratic Party should focus more on. I'm not calling you a moron, but I am, but I am, uh, is, I'm kidding. When the government rescues big business, we either own all of it or a piece of it. Uh, uh, Air France uh, is partly owned by, I think, Belgium. I know it's partly owned by France. I don't think there's anything wrong with you bail out GM, as we did, or you bail out Chrysler, and we either own a majority, we have a majority stakehold of stock. We buy stock in Chrysler. Our government would own 50%, 49%, 48%. We collect the dividends into our treasury. And we are shareholders who can dictate union contracts, whether or not factories are going to be shipped overseas. And the, you know, you know, where you're getting into a lot of trouble, like when you say when you say we, like you're making the a government. Lot of assumptions of, the government. Right, okay. That that's the problem. okay. The federal okay. government. I know what you I know what you mean and I I agree with the general idea that you're getting at. But this is when you say federal government, like what you mean is the forces of capital, like our current instantiation of a federal government, of a controlling power, is a result of our economic activity. It's not like, it's not idealized. It's a, it's a, it's result of our economic uh, activity as a group of humans, right? So, like, the idea of how to, how to fix it is to, undermine the concept of this centralization, right? No. Well, okay, so let me, let me go one, one, one. No, no, you're, 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 I'm dealing, I'm I'm dealing with the reality on the ground. You can sell the American. I'm I'm with you. I 
I'm with you. I'm so with you. Let me let me finish. Let me finish because I've been putting for a couple of weeks in your question when I have to sign in to the Zoom meeting, like, what do you want to talk about? I've been putting in pragmatism, right? So, like, I do agree with you. I think we need to use the power structure that exists before us. Like, we have to take hold of the power structure and try and, like, manipulate it to our ends, right? Like, that's the pragmatic path. So, like, my instinct is taxation, is to, like, start taking wealth away from the corporations and the the upper, upper you know, 5 or 10 percent or 1 percent. I agree. Or Nobody like, could be worth a right? billion dollars. I agree with you. Exactly. Like, that's our, we're going to make it a, we're, that's our job. We're going to, that's our number one priority. That's our number one action is that we can start going into that area, the area of our government, and taking it back by taxing people, right? And that's why I get upset when people go against uh, AOC because she's a sellout, because she isn't doing their certain prescriptive policy stance, right? But she's working on our side. She's on the inside, and she's trying to get into that area of taxing the wealth and taking the wealth back and making the general population more of an evil, uh, an even playing field, right? That's what we want. We want, like, more of, like, even distribution of wealth, even distribution of wealth. The production of society should just be distributed in an equitable fashion. That's what we want as our number one goal. So, like, our quickest way to do that is to go into the power structure, to go into American government and get hold of it, right? Like right now we have the barest fucking grasp of it. We have a tiny little, tiny, we're holding on by our fingernails. We're hoping on Joe Biden and AOC and these other people. We have a tiny little window, but it's going to go on. We're going to lose the grasp of power and we're going to have to get it back again. Okay, so, so we're, I'm not disagreeing. I'm not disagreeing with you. It's priorities. I'm, I, I disagree with you on priorities. I believe that we should tax Jeff Bezos and Tim Cook out of existence. As AOC, 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 AOC says, being a billionaire is a policy failure. Right. Right. That is a policy failure. You cannot be a billionaire without committing several crimes. I know that sounds like a cliche, but it's true. You cannot be a billionaire without committing crimes. It's impossible. So, now, how do you pay for social programs? Some people say taxing billionaires and repatriating corporate uh, money that's hidden in slush funds overseas will not pay for anything. It's, you're only going to get a couple of trillion dollars. That's oh, bullshit. I know. But you know what? Long term, by taxing billionaires out of existence, what you're doing is you're, you're cutting off the head of the supply side economic snake. You will no longer have the Steve Moores of the world or the Glenn Hubbards, who are subsidized by the billionaires to teach lies at business schools and to write, you know, op-ed 
pieces for the Wall Street Journal. When you tax the Koch brothers, you get rid of the, the fire hose of money sent to climate change deniers. They, they don't have the money to prop up you know, the Weekly Standard and the National Review and all these frauds who just parrot right-wing talking points because they're paid to do so. So I do think taxing billionaires out of existence will change the conversation in this country. But I, in terms of priorities, I agree with you that re, rewriting our tax code would would end up. It's a, it's a, it's a moral. It's a, it's a moral calling. It's about our. It's about saying to each other. Right? Like, we can all look at each other. We're all on social media. We can all agree or disagree in, like, mass quantities. It's about saying to each other, what's right? Right? It's about saying, how should we live? It's like, we have a whole planet of people. Like, how should we live? It's recognizing white privilege, right? That's what white privilege is. It's recognizing, like, you have all the goods, motherfucker. Okay, so let me, let me, can I, can I, I'm older than you. Let me, and I have to get to other, we can continue this later. You know, the only, I know it's hard to believe, but I write jokes. That's what I do. I, I know people who listen to the show are stunned to discover that, <laughs> that I write jokes. And one of the things I learned about jokes is one and one equals punchline. And you cannot get a laugh by adding one and one and three. I also want to tell you about three. No, you're not going to get a laugh. A joke is one and one equals punchline. That's it. And if you want to say something else, then say it after one and one equals punchline. And add it as a tag. And the tag is one and one equals punchline. The mistake I make and the mistake novices make is they're saying too much in their jokes, right? I know a little. I, I know it's hard to believe that I I might understand. Judging from this podcast, you can't tell, but I understand a little about communication. I know this is hard for you to believe, but. In terms of communicating to the American people, I am being serious here. You have to keep it simple. You have to keep it simple. Einstein said, if you can't explain your theory to a five-year-old, you don't have a theory. That's what Einstein said. Good luck explaining the theory of relativity to a five-year-old. But Einstein maintained that you should be able to explain the theory of relativity to a five-year-old. Otherwise, you don't have a theory. And, and one of the things that I'm crying out for from the left is clarity. And I'm not talking to you, Dan. I'm just talking in general. Is clarity. Thank you. Huh? Is, cla I, I got you, I got is clarity and simplicity. Because the other side, you know, we talked to Dr. Liam O'Mara and Professor Adnan Hussein today about fascists. Fascists keep it really simple. 
So, you know, they attract the simple-minded. If we want to win, if the left, the reason the left doesn't win is a communications problem, clarity, simplicity, and the more I talk to some people, the more I begin to understand that there are some people on the left, some people in the Democratic, most people in the Democratic Party, which is not the left, who have no idea what they want and how to get it. When you sit down with career Democrats, I talk to them on this show, they, they don't have a clue as to what they stand for. They have, they've constructed a, a, a string of talking points that they've memorized, and when you ask them to clarify or go underneath, it's just superficial, they have no idea what they really want. No idea. And, and, and I think the problem I, that I hear, especially from, forget the, de the Democrats are lost, but what I hear from the left sometimes is a lot of intellectual verbal gymnastics that sounds smart, because it is smart, but you're not going to persuade you know, the, the 78 million, 80 million Americans we need to implement what we want. Keep it simple. And I'm not talking the taxation. I agree with you about the taxation. The problem, the reason we're not getting that is because we have Democrats who are controlled by Wall Street. They don't want to tax the billionaires into oblivion. They like getting the money the, the consultant class loves getting money from the richest 1%. So they have no, you know, James Carville, Paul Begala, David Axelrod, these frauds. I mean, you, we talked about this last week on the show. They spent $5.6 billion in 2020. $5.6 billion was spent on television advertising. The Democrats and something like two-thirds of the advertising budget was wasted. They were just, they were advertising. They didn't care. They were, because the consultants work on a commission. So they want the money uh, for money's sake. They say, you need a lot of money. you got to raise a lot of money. So I can buy advertising and take something like 10% of the buy. So we have a Democratic Party who has no interest in overturning Citizens United or getting the money out of politics because they're all getting rich. But we on the left, I think we need to speak very simply and say what we want and repeat it over and over again. And I think uh, unions are a good idea, but I also think I, I think you're right about taxation, and I and again I get back to nationalizing industries. Let we're in a boom and bust, constant boom and bust cycle, and the boom and bust cycle is what prevents capitalism from collapsing on its own weight. The 2008 financial collapse, 
rescued capitalism. We had to come in and save it. But had we just let it play out? Go, okay, all right, capitalism just failed. The banks need federal money. Now we own the banks. Now we own the banks. We'll rescue you, but we now own, we're now majority stakeholders in these banks. That you can sell to the American people. The American people were against TARP in 2008. Congress rejected TARP on the first vote. Taxes, ta toxic Asset Relief Program. I think it was like an $800 billion bailout to Goldman Sachs and uh, Wells Fargo and Bank of America. And, you know, the American people are pretty smart. And we were told the oxygen has been sucked out of capitalism. If we don't give the banks the $800 billion, capitalism will fail. And Congress said, let it fail. They rejected TARP. And then, you know... Somehow they took another vote and it passed. Had we done it right, we would have let these banks fail. And instead of spending $800 billion rescuing the banks, we would have rescued the homeowners. We would have set up new ways to give out mortgages. And you want to start a bank? Go ahead. This is America. But America is doing the banking now. That's an easier sell to the American people it's anti-intellectual. It's simple. People understand that. So next time it goes bust, we should have a plan in place to nationalize. You know, in, in, two, in 2008, when the, when the crash happened, I was immediately, like, my immediate reaction was like, they're going to have to revalue the property. Right? That's what it's all about. It was all about, like, having this inflated property value and trapping people into into agreeing to buy it. And I was like, oh, shit, they're going to have to fucking revalue this property. And they, that's not what they did. They propped up the value of the property. They said, okay, here's $500,000 properties that no one can actually afford to buy. Therefore, the value is, is absurd. Like, it's not real because no one can pay for it. And that's not, they didn't, they didn't revalue it. They said, this is a $500,000 property and we're going to give the bank enough money so that they can continue saying it is. It was the most fucking corrupt shit I've ever seen. If I were president, if I were Nancy Pelosi or Chuck Schumer, I would say to the American people, I'm not going to try to sell you on anything other than government expansion. There is currently a bubble right now. The money, the $5 trillion that we dumped into the economy in the past year is creating a real estate bubble, it's creating a stock bubble. It's creating a cryptocurrency bubble. It's creating a trading card bubble. It's creating this digital art bubble. And, folks, that says to me, as leader of the Democratic Party, that the $5 trillion did not go to the people it was supposed to go to. Because exactly. the people who need it 
are not going to waste it on cryptocurrency, the stock market, or buying a second home. So here's the deal, America. Next time things go bust, and they will, we're going to do things differently. We've learned our lesson. The money is going to the taxpayers, to the people who need it, the 99%. We're not going to have a repeat of what has been going on since the savings and loans uh, catastrophe under George Herbert Walker Bush, although people went to prison in the SNL uh, scandal. Next time, next bus, next taxpayer bailout, we're setting up uh, that the, the Federal Reserve is going to give every American, based on your Social Security number, your own bank account. And we're going to wire the money to you, not to Chase or, or, or uh, J.P. Morgan or Wells Fargo to administer these loans or these bills. We are going to mail the money directly to you. Tell me how that is not political hate. Tell me how the American people would not say, oh, my God, yes, because the American people hate Wall Street. They hate the banks. That's the leadership that the Democratic Party needs. You're not going to get it from Pelosi. You're not going to get it from Schumer. There's nobody in the Democratic Party willing to say that. There's nobody in the Democratic Party who's willing to stand up and say, not only am I for Medicare for all, I'm against the health insurance companies, and I want to put them out of business. If you can't say, I want to put the health insurance companies out of business, then you can't be for Medicare for all. The two can't coexist. You don't have leaders saying that. You don't. I think to your messaging, I think to your messaging point, like, you don't, you don't say that explicitly. Yes, like, you do. Yes, you do. No, you just do it. No, you just do it. Like, you, 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 you have to sell the, it. You no, the policy, you make the policy that makes it happen. Right? Like, that's what you want to do. You, like, just go right to the source. You say, okay, we're lowering the Medicare um, age to 50. How's that? Like, I agree with you. I, I think that's a great idea. That leads into the private insurance industry, right? Like, the private ins insurance industry, if, if you said we're lowering the age of Medicare to 50, they're going to shit their fucking pants. Right? Like, that's how you get them. Like, you just undercut them. Like, you just go in aggressively and you start taking over shit. Like, you say, hey, like, telecom. Like, telecom is now a national industry. Verizon okay. and fucking Comcast I, I agree with you. The, the problem is there's only one Bernie. Bernie could sell. You have to be able to sell that as a president. You need to sell that to your own party. I agree with you. I agree with you. And and we don't I have anybody. You're not sure what there isn't anybody in the Democratic Party who is for what you just said. Well, even Bernie's not really in the Democratic Party. See, yeah. that's part of the issue. And also, Occupy Wall Street managed to get away with the simple terminology Occupy Wall Street. What you're talking about? People hate it, and it was 
went like gangbusters. It was very popular, and then, of course, it got destroyed by Democrats as much as anything else. Right. You know, I I have been, I really am resistant to keep crapping on the Democratic Party because we just need to do what Professor Marianne Cummings is doing, and you got to run for office. And, and, you know, Jacobin says, you know, you need to be the worm inside the Democratic Party that changes it from within. Uh, we all know that the Democratic Party uh, is uh, complete and utter charade. But uh, unless you're running for office as a Democrat and changing it and can't, I mean, you know, sitting and talking on a podcast uh, is, uh, you know, at some point it becomes masturbation. People have to, uh, let me take some more calls. Frankie C. from the Molinari crime family. Hello, can you hear me? Yes. May, may I do a little mini community billboard of just my things? Yes, of course. Awesome. Okay, so two things. One, Valley Box Theater, new time slot. And two, a very important um, local election in Austin. Just for, for Austin listeners, voting for that is tomorrow and Saturday are the last time. What is the election? Uh, it is... There are, there are other things on the ballot, but the main thing I'm talking about is Proposition B, which criminalizes homelessness, basically. So you want to vote no on Prop B tomorrow, 7 a.m. to 7 p.m., or on Saturday, which is Election Day, um, also 7 a.m. to 7 p.m., and you can look up your voting, your polling locations on traviscountytx.gov. And in Austin, you can vote in any precinct. So, yeah. But basically, it they, They've already criminalized protesting in Texas, haven't they? Uh, they either have or they're about to. Yeah. But, um, yeah. Prop B, it creates huge fines, like $500, and criminal offenses for activities that are unavoidable if you're homeless. Namely, sitting with your possessions. Like, pe people are referring to this proposition as a camping ban, but it's far beyond that. You do not have to be camping. Like, if you are, if you have your personal belongings in a public area, if you're sleeping in a vehicle, or if you, like, look like you might maybe be living in a public area, you can get harassed by the police, arrested, fined, imprisoned. You don't have to have a tent or anything. And to take that further, just sitting or lying down in certain areas is included in that. Plus panhandling, which they specify... You have to be aggressive, but that's a judgment call. And we used to have laws like this that were repealed before, and you, you know, the cops would just like arrest anybody for it. So aggressive is very much 
a subjective judgment on their part. And it funds no services or anything for unhoused people. Like, it doesn't address the problem at all. It just criminalizes them. And so. this, is it, this is statewide or just Austin? This is the city of Austin. Wow. So It, it can't pass Austin, can it? <sighs> I, I hope not. Um, it's been off your election at a weird time, so just like it, like not a ton of people are going to vote in it, so I'm hoping just any Austin listeners that can that will hear this, um, they could, that number could make an actual difference. So. Criminalizing homeless, like in LA, they spent a million dollars to throw the homeless out of Echo Park. That's what criminalizing the homeless. Instead of spending a million dollars on putting them up in a hotel, give it to the police to uh, round them up. All right, Frankie C., thank you. You'll tell us how it... You'll tell us on Thursday what the results were? I think Frankie C. disappeared. She's with the Molinari crime family. And finally, I think this, we're down to God. And, and me. I've had my head. Oh, hi. Great. Thank you for Andrea. Oh, thank you for having her on. I, I'm, uh, I'm a big fan. I, I've, I've been following her just for the last few months, but I'm right. entertained uh, by her, and uh, she cheers me up right. in the morning. She's great. So I, I have, uh, I'd like to um, uh, switch gears, and I've got a couple of questions. One, I'm really intrigued by what you said about Andrew Basevich and uh, Smedley Butler, and I'd like some clarification, because I think that what I heard you say is that when Butler went and um, testified before Congress about the plot to assassinate FDR, that he was insane and that... No, I, don't, I don't think he said... Oh. I don't think... Oh, okay. That, maybe I said insane, and I apologize. What Andrew Basevich said, go to davidfeldmanshow.com and search for Andrew Basevich. I, I think... I, I interviewed him. I'm actually going to. I seven years ago, and I am going to listen to it. But I just kind of. So let me see if my memory is correct. He, I said, "What about Smedley Butler?" And as I remember it, and then tell me next time we're recording, uh, Andrew Basevich kind of giggled and said, "Well, Smedley had a vivid imagination, and what he imagined they wanted from him wasn't." actually but was mm. being presented to him. So Andrew basically kind of discounted uh, Smedley Butler. And I'm particularly interested because um, I have been um, proofreading, editing um, Harvey Wasserman's new American history book and he discusses it in the book so I really want to be able to um, okay, great. Uh, dig so, down and find out if it's, if it's true or not. You know, I I think at the time I had the money to transcribe that interview. I think. I think that there's a transcription of it. I apologize. There, 
There may not be. But this is pre-divorce. 2000, this is 2000, what year is it, 2013? Well, I think it was seven years ago. I've got it. I actually have it um, up. Let me do it. Yeah, I mean, it's, re- it's, it's, yeah. Re- it's received wisdom on the left. It's se- September 25th, 2013. Interview with you and Andrew Basevich. Yeah. So it's received wisdom that Smedley Butler was the most respected, most honored military person in America, and that they came to him, the industrialists, the people who run GM, I think the Harriman brothers and the the Bush family, came to him and said, we want you to help us stage a coup against Franklin Delano Roosevelt. And instead of going along with them, he turned them in, went before Congress, right? That's what the received wisdom is. Right, That's that's what the story is. Right. And he wrote a book called, you know, I was a gangster for capitalism. Andrew Basevic, uh I believe on my show, kind of trivialized that idea. And I'd be curious. I'm pretty sure my memory serves me correct. Because I know yeah. we then, I know then that we started making fun of Smedley Butler on my show. And we had... Uh, Jeremy Kramer, I would interview the ghost of Smedley Butler. <laughs> so I wouldn't have done it had I not heard that from Andrew Basevic. But, uh, uh, well, it's intriguing, and I'm going to look into it. Okay. And um, there's, well, just a, a real quick point, because Andrea didn't hear you when you asked her if she'd come back, and so I tweeted at her or texted her, and and she said, of course, she would love to, so anytime. She, she did great. I mean, that was just, you know, that was like when Andy Brown and Sarah were covering uh, the protests uh, after Memorial Day when they killed George Floyd in Minnesota. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I mean, that wasn't great. That, 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 that wasn't great, but the reporting was great. So I have another question, and that's about um, Mark... Um, What's his name? Breslin? Savasco. Mark Savasco, uh, teaches Ted, staff. Yeah, yeah, for Ted Lou. Yeah. He was my congressperson. I love Ted. Um, one of the things that I really love about him, he's a fantastic listener. Mm-hmm. And he's, he makes himself available to his constituents. He goes to a lot of events. And he stands and he listens patiently. And he never acts impatient with anyone. He just, like, oh, I've got to go to the next thing, which is pretty remarkable and unusual for a uh, politician, I'd say. He's a good man. I had him on the show around the same, before he was a congressperson, he was in the state senate, and he passed a bill outlawing uh, gay reparative therapy. I, I know. What a mensch, huh? Yeah. What a man. She's just a, that was such a wonderful thing that he did. And, um, but I learned today, I didn't get to hear the beginning of the show when you had Mark on, but I learned today that um, some people that I associate with had actually been commissioned by Ted Lieu to write into the proposed Green New Deal provisions to, um, solarize Puerto Rico 
And I wondered if that came up today uh, when he was on the show. No. Okay. But I, next time, it will, will hope, I hope Mark will start coming back again because nobody gives a better civics lesson than Mark. I mean, he just knows how Bill's you know, Even though he's a career Democrat, he's uh, one of the good ones, huh? He's Ted Lewis, chief of staff, Howie Klein's favorite congressperson. Wow, yeah. Yeah, I, I really I, I really admire Ted. So anyway, thanks again for having Andrea on. That was really yeah, great. Yeah, please. Thank you. And Thank you. She, she got home safely. And um, the it was just wonderful that the, uh, you know, they were kind of fearing that a lot of uh, Trump supporters were going to descend on Elizabeth City, and that didn't materialize. So I'm very relieved. Yeah. Well, there'll be another shooting this week of another unarmed black person. Yeah, and then another, and then another, and then another. You know, I heard um, um, Moral Mondays, who the the uh, man who leads that up. I'm trying to think of his name. Um, all of a sudden, I'm drawing a blank. But there was a hot mic out in front of the courthouse today when people were waiting for the uh, family to come out after viewing the uh, video footage and um, they were talking about how it's clear uh, that um, the sheriff's department has a lot to hide and that's why they've been slow walking the release of even those 20 seconds that they released and uh, that, um, you know, it, it, I, I just, um, I'm, you know, I'm just, I, I, I just can't believe that they're, they're not withholding all of that body cam footage for any other reason that they are guilty of a horrendous atrocity. Well, they, they've hired, I don't know if you saw the news, they hired the ghost of Rosemary Wood to transcribe it. <laughs> I think right. I think we're going to see a Rosemary Wood movie, yeah. here. an 18-minute yeah. yeah. gap. Uh, you know. Okay. Well. Anyway, thanks for the conversation. Thank you. And, uh, yeah, it was good, great show today. Really? Let's wrap it up. Let's go to Siem, England. Are, are you God today, or are you Lane or God? I'm just Lane today. Good. I'm not in the mood to talk to God. Yeah, man, sorry about that shit. Yeah. Right. Re the government versus capitalism debate. Um, you may have noticed with likes of Trump and the Brexit, the very people who require good government most um, don't like government. They're being stitched up. That, that, what you say is right, government is better than capitalism, but good government would be, and no one's witnessed Well, that. I didn't say government is better than capitalism. I just said government is better than corporations, than corporations or business. But we, the, the reason we're at the state we are now is because of government. That's been because taken over. That's been taken over by the enemy. And how does that happen? Because... Was it at a gunpoint? I'm sorry? 
Was it enough good points? Money, it is the, the so I understand what you're saying, <laughs> that, that capitalism has this thing called well, money, well, which is a I, cancer, and it has infiltrated uh, every nook and cranny of our government and made it toxic. I agree with you. Uh, that's the thing. You've got to remember all these things, all these theories and all these, what ifs, unlike um, the way corporations are labeled, um, governments are human. <laughs> Aren't corporations here in the United States, corporations are, are human? Yeah. I don't know, but well, governments actually are, um, because they're all made up of humans and they're all voted in by humans. Um, democratically, he says in inverted commas, and it's, it's difficult to ever could can you ever have government that will be not corrupt, right? And that's the thing. And I think that's the thing that uh, you know, the people who need this help the most are as pissed off with government as the most people don't understand. If you say the word Wall Street to the average pundit, they don't really know what you're talking about. It's, they know vaguely it's like big money, that's all they know. And um, so this this easy sell, we need to make it simple, we need to make it plain. Um, I don't think that would work either. Yeah. It's gone too far. I think there needs to be a root and branch change in the way we look at Governance, as opposed to government, but with the way we as a, structure ourselves as societies, and um, I think it needs to change a lot. Okay, so if I were, let me ask you a question because I find this very frustrating. You know, I love you. Yes, I do. Yes, I love you too. David. Thank you. And and I, I, I find. It's a leadership problem. Okay? You, you have, I think David Hare describes uh, the people in England who uh, talk left and live right. <laughs> so the Democratic Party is lousy with people who live right and talk left, which means they don't mean anything they say. To them, their politics is fashion. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's the problem with the Democrats. Maybe not labor, I don't know, or the New Dems. I don't understand that. But I know in America, we have people who talk a certain way about the economy and the poor because it's fashionable. It matches their drapes. Yes. Okay. Because they're living right. They're on the. They have the money. Uh, here's. But I think I think we have a leadership problem in the United States. We are being led by people who have money. The Democratic Party is led by people who have money or owe money, and they're trying to get out of debt, and they're sucking off the corporate teat. They're planning their next job once they get out of government. I'm talking about our political leadership. So we have a leadership problem, and they, we don't have... We just do not have anybody in the Senate or the House of Representatives who is equivalent to Bernie. 
And that's why Bernie didn't win. There was no infrastructure because there's really no, there's no left. There's no persuasive left in America. There's no left left in America. I think there's a lot more behind it than that, but yes, you're right. Yes. There are people who identify on the left. So the problem that I hear, even from you, is you don't have the leadership to say, this is where we're going. This is where the left is heading. Occupy, the genius of Occupy was there was no leadership. And I agreed with them for not having leadership. But we need more Bernies. We need to march in lockstep. We need to be for very specific things and then go out and explain it, like Medicare for all. Medicare for all should be the template upon which we lay all other policy because that people understand that. It's genius. You want socialized medicine? We have a thing called Medicare. It works. Ask your grandparents. How about Medicare for everybody? Medicare for all. It's simple. And the only reason we don't have it is the, the networks throttle the conversation. That's a whole other issue. But mm -hmm. when the, the left needs to focus on very specific things, and, you know, we're getting late into the show, and I don't want to lose my temper because I don't know if this is an opinion or just me wanting to just lose my shit. But at some point, we become a caricature of ourselves. Everybody on the, not everybody, but a lot of people on the left like to hear themselves talk, and they want to say this, and they want to have this critique and that critique. You know, pick a hole and fuck it. People enjoy the mental debate, the mental... Yes, and at some point you need to pick a hole and fuck it. And, and commit to it. And at some point, you need to say Medicare for all. And that's it. And you just message on Medicare for all. And I don't want to hear any reasons why it's not going to work. It's Dwight D. Eisenhower on the morning of D-Day. We're going in. I don't care what the weather is. I don't care if there are spies who know we're going, we're storming the beach. At some point, you just have to do it. And there's a, there's, we're, we're, you know, the left, you know, it seems to me that I hear a lot of hand-wringing. No, no, this is what we have to do. We have to go in through Calais. Or, you know what, forget Normandy. Too many people are going to die. At some point, you have to storm the beach and 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 see blood on the sand. At some point, the left has to say, "This is what we want." There's too much. There's too much intellectualism. We need to dumb it down and keep it simple. And it's infuriating. The planet. The planet has eight years. And I'm hearing people talking about. 
I mean, do you honestly think in the next eight years here in America, Wayne, that we're going to get rid of capitalism? Do you think that could ever happen? Not in America. Yeah. But, you know, I talk to people and we talk and talk and they go, see, it's capitalism. It's ca Yeah, I know it's capitalism. It's also cancer. So we mm -hmm. give up. Capitalism is a cancer. People live to be 105 with a cancer. Capitalism is cancer. Sometimes you don't get rid of the cancer. You live with it. Mm -hmm. But I hear people on the left who think, unless we get rid of this cancer, we're, we got eight years. We got people dying on the streets here in America. What do we, what do we have to work with here? Mm -hmm. Well, you're, I'm you're, not hearing you're, that. I'm not hearing enough of that. Yeah. The urgency, the sense of urgency. But that's what neo neoliberalism try to address that by furrowing the trough between the two with the uh, the third way. Now that worked temporarily, but in the end, it's it's what's led us to where we are now. Yeah, the third way to me. Blair and Clinton was neoliberal branding, and that's all it was. It was a way of saying, uh, we're going to sell you a third way, but it's really a 180. We're, we're going to become Republicans. We're going to become Rockefeller Republicans, globalists. Uh, the, the, the third way, the new third way for the Democrats should be a clear picture of the role government plays in our lives and anti-corporate anti-wealthy mm -hmm. and 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 i don't know how we get to the point where there's a party in this country that represents not the working man or the working woman but the 99 percent the people who are, you know, 40% of this country, no more, like 50%, can't come up with, can't come up with the cash to pay a $500 bill. Mm -hmm. A lot of voters there. We're, we're, we're leaving them on the table. How are we mm -hmm. not, how are the Democrats not getting to them? Because the Democrats don't appeal to the people who can't come up with $400. Mm -hmm. Is the Republicans who like theoretically represent um, capitalism? They don't appeal to the minor. It took Trump to appeal to them, and Trump was like Brexit. Trump was like a fuck you to the system, basically. They for those people. Um, we had Corbyn mentioned him. He brought it down to he brought it down to brass tacks. Every every single interview. Um, and even, what was the, uh, for the many, not the few, he even had one of those nice, simple logos. And policy-wise, pretty much everybody was spot on and agreed with what he was saying regarding, um, like you mentioned earlier, renationalizing, he wanted to renationalize energy. Uh, you British really wanted to renationalize rail transport. Uh, he wanted, wanted to invest an investment bank, a local investment bank around all the regions for 
people who couldn't afford it to have an actual bank account. So it'd be like a, what the, what, pretty much what the post office used to do. So on the, like, you're right, on a policy level, it was all fine. And he offered stuff that the working classes of this country have begged for, for decades and decades and decades, but simply wasn't enough. And it took little digs at its character, not wearing a tie, not bowing at the right angle during Armistice Day. It took a little snidey little dig from the media, and that was enough for him not to be voted in, even though policy-wise, across the board, they love them. But that's the problem. Leadership is, like, you're right, there is a leadership problem, but I think it's deeper than that. Um, Did you see the interview? i got to wrap it up. The last show was nine hours. Did you see the interview with Dr. Liam O'Mara and Adnan Hussain yeah. about fascism? Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, my current worries in, in Britain. I mean, the, 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 thing, the thing that's so infuriating, and I don't want to beat up on the Democrats. I don't. But the Democrats, we were told that Donald Trump is so bad, which he is, and that he's an existential threat we're fighting for the soul of our nation. But Joe Biden and the Democrats, mm-hmm. even Bernie, couldn't call Trump and the Republicans what it is. Mm-hmm. Fascism. Yes. This is fascism. And, mm-hmm. and you explain to the American people, you teach them what fascism means. And you force the stenographers at MSNBC, CNN, and even Fox Mm-hmm. to discuss the definition of fascism. Mm-hmm. Because that's what it is. And we can't even get the Democrats, even Bernie, to call Trump and McCarthy and Mitch McConnell fascists. By every... They check off every box. Mm-hmm. I gotta wrap it up. I think you're right. Leadership is necessary, but I don't think it's enough. Sadly, there's got to be there's got to be a total change in what we what we what we currently think of as governance, let, let alone government. It's leadership. It is mm-hmm. leadership. People are looking for somebody to clarify and solidify and and make us appeal to our better angels and march with them. Bernie could have done it. Bernie could have won had had there been tentacles. There there was no infrastructure in the Democratic Mm -hmm. Party to prop him up. And they they effed him by Perez was very smart. He said, hey, everybody, come on into the pool. We're a big tent. Everybody run for president. So Bernie, you know, it was just him, O'Malley, and Hillary in 2016 Mm -hmm. running in the primaries. Bernie ran against, what, 25 candidates? You know why? They were terrified that Bernie would get airtime 
because the more Bernie spoke, the more people liked him. So they just littered that debate stage with people who interrupted him, and he never got to really articulate the message. He never. He never got to spell out what Medicare for All was. He had to shout out a plan. The most important issue in America, Medicare for All, and Bernie had a shout over the din of Amy Klobuchar and Elizabeth Warren and Pete Buttigieg and Biden, these hacks. Because they didn't want, the Democrats didn't want Bernie to speak to the American people. Anyway, Jim, thank you, Lane. I, I, I'm, this is never going to end if we don't. <laughs> this is turning into office hours. Jim. Jim. Sorry. I, I'll try to make this quick. I listened to, to Bernie for on Tom Hartman's show for like 10 years. And in the early days, Bernie talked often about campaign finance. But, you know, that's such a, a non-starter public media. It's public because the, the media was shut him down. That was the reason he didn't, I think, the reason he didn't get the, the media coverage was that they knew he wanted to try and eliminate campaign finance, you know, or, which is campaign finance, you know, uh, the rapist, Les Moonves, who used to run CBS until they found out he was a rapist, said he looked at the bottom line uh, in 2016. You know, CBS owns all these local television and radio stations, and the rapist, Les Moonves, said uh, Trump may be bad for America, but he's great for us. Look at all this money that's being spent on advertising, said Les Moonves, rapist. And uh, on a, uh, I think it was Ian Nath, quite a few years ago, he was interviewing you know, somebody uh, talking about Eisenhower's cross of gold, uh, speech, cross of iron speech. And Eisenhower wanted to say, beware of the military industrial complex. Uh, military-industrial media complex, and his advisors all said, "Oh, you can't criticize the media; they'll kill you." So, Ralph Nader told me that he said that 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 Eisenhower was already warning about the military-industrial complex early in his presidency. It wasn't just as valedictory that he had. Is that what you're saying? Is that? Yeah. Yes. And so, and how early do, do you? No, of like what? What was his first speech warning about the military-industrial complex? Was it like fifty-three, fifty-two, fifty-four? I really don't know that uh, specifically, but yeah. it's just because everybody I mean, thinks it was his parting shot as president. But uh, as I understand it, he, he had said this uh, throughout. Right, but there was another element. Um, it was, I thought it was congressional. I thought it was military industrial congressional congress. Uh, I mean, um, complex. <laughs> there was another element that he was persuaded to take out of that particular formula. Okay. But I think it was congressional, but I would have to research it. 
Vincent Florida has a quote from Bernie Sanders about Trump. This is flirting with fascism in the open and broad daylight now. Okay. Bernie called called it what it was, although he said flirting with fascism. Uh, but I guess Bernie did call out uh, fascism. Hey, this is fun. I, I enjoy taking calls. It reminds me of office hours, but uh, I have to get this show up in an hour, so I'm going to wrap it up. Thank you, everybody. Uh, Jim, why don't you give us, you get the last word. Oh, it's a great show. I enjoyed it. It was uh, a great but, show. Um, oh, I was going to say, the other day Tom Hartman spoke about uh, capitalism, and uh, he talked about how all the primitive societies and cultures, they all own things in common. They had no concept of the greed of personal ownership. And, uh, you know, earlier there was a reference to capitalism being natural. But uh, I'd say sharing really is more natural, uh, especially when, you know, resources are scarce and, you know, communities were actually socialist. They all lived or died together, just, you know, on their own help. So, yeah. anyway, good show. Thank, thank you. you. It was a great show. I want to thank all of um, Dan has, I'm sure he's gone to bed, but uh, I want to thank uh, Martha Previtt. I want to thank Mark Savasco from Ted Lou's office. He's the chief of staff. Aaron Berg, Mark Breslin. Uh, let's see. Eddie, uh, Ed Larson. We're going to screen How America Killed My Mother later in the month. Uh, Dr. Harriet Frod. Uh, the 8.30 spot, I can't remember. I'll get back to that in a second. Oh, 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 Myla. Andrea. Myla and Andrea. Right, right, right. And then Dr. William O'Mara and Professor Adnan Hussein discussing fascism, followed by the brilliant Professor Marianne Cummings and then... Professor Mike Steinel. I think that covers, I, I think I got everybody, right? And then the listeners taking calls. I enjoy taking calls. It's fun. And, uh, David, I just looked it up. I was right. It, it was originally the military-industrial-congressional complex. And then he um, deleted congressional Eisenhower. Hmm. That is. Okay. And I'll find out what the earlier speech that he gave. I understand he gave one, like, in 53 or 54. All right. I uh, want to thank everybody. Let me just make sure I've done everything right. Uh, thank you all for, for coming to the show. Go to davidfeldmanshow.com if you would like to attend a live taping. We have a pretty interesting group of uh, listeners who come to the Zoom room on Mondays and Thursdays. There's a YouTube channel. If you would like to subscribe to that, you can, if you don't want to, Come to the Zoom room. You can watch us on YouTube and download us wherever you get your podcasts. Sign up for my newsletter by going to davidfeldmanshow.com. If you would like a link to this Friday's office hours, go to davidfeldmanshow.com and hit office hours. It will take you right to the link. 
a lot of you have emailed me. There was a bit of a dust-up on the Ralph Nader Radio hours. I have a lot of emails uh, from the show that I'm trying to answer, so I'm way behind on uh, the emails. If you want to contact me, go to davidfeldmanshow.com. I will try to return all my emails. Uh, right now, the best way to get my attention is come to office hours. Uh, I... I'm available from 8 till about 8.30 every Friday night. And uh, if you want to talk to me or email me, I'll eventually get back to you. Follow me on Twitter. And I think that's it. Remember to – oh, hang on for one second. I wish I could be smoother at this. I, wa I want this to be more corporate. I want it to look slick and soulless. Remember to stay strong and protect the weak. It's time right now for the David Feldman Show. He's talking politics and comedy, too. To tell a dirty joke if you want him to. He's just a lefty from way back. He's a union man with an amiable right. Someday he's mad and he feels like fighting. Time right now for the David Feldman Show to get your ears on right, buckle in real tight. He's got a lot to say and he's coming your way.
Welcome to the mop-up for May 27th, 2021. I'm David Feldman, coming to you from an air shaft overlooking a parking garage in New York City where the temperature is 77 degrees and mostly sunny. Mike Rowe will be joining us in a few minutes, maybe two. U.S. scientists are expanding efforts to evaluate when exactly we'll need booster shots. So... Make sure you get your shots now so you can get your booster shots, because it's really bad to get a booster shot if you haven't gotten your first shot. Jennifer Weisselberg, she's the former daughter-in-law of Alan Weisselberg. He's the CFO of the Trump Organization. Today she told CNN that she's getting evicted from her apartment. She was living in a Trump-owned apartment because she has told the media that her former father-in-law, Alan Weisselberg, is about to flip. We'll be talking about the Friends reunion. It premieres tonight, Thursday, on, I guess it would be HBO Max? Well, here to tell us about all that and sitcom writing is Mike Rowe. He is a former comedian. I don't think former. I don't think he ever was. No, <laughs> He's a former comedian, comedy writer. He's definitely a comedy writer and a producer. Nominated for six Emmys for his work on Futurama and Family Guy. And he actually won an Emmy for his writing on Futurama. He's been nominated for two Annie Awards, earning two, a Writers Guild Award and a Gemini Award. He's earned a Webby. Uh, that's just for his toes. And, no, he won a Webby for the Paranormal Action Squad. His writing has also appeared in Vanity Fair magazine. He lives in Los Angeles with his wife, his twin sons, and his dog, Marty Allen. And he has a book out that everybody should go buy. Go buy. It's a funny thing. It is. I'm not making this up. It's like a chart buster. It's, it's doing incredibly well. It's a best-selling book. It's a funny thing, how the professional comedy business made me fat and bald. <laughs> a comedy memoir. Please welcome the brilliant Mike Rowe. Thank you. Thank you. You're, you're talking over your laughs. Uh, well... That's because I'm not used to that. <laughs> uh, Congratulations on the book. You know, when you first started coming on the show, I I didn't think it was going to be that big a bestseller. And then I started reading it, and I thought, well, this is fantastic. It can't possibly become a bestseller if it's this good. And now it's a bestseller? Well, that's what I saw on Amazon. I don't know what it means in the long run, but there was a while where I was like on comedy memoirs between Steve Martin and Robin Williams. Never heard of them. Who, who refresh my memory? Uh, one's a Jew. <laughs> <laughs> Which one's a Jew? I don't think either one of them. Uh, uh, 
So and and I saw you on one list, Robert Iger, the head of Disney. Like you're outselling Robert Iger, the head of Disney. Honestly, I don't know what it means, and it might just be I got caught up in some weird algorithms. Who knows? I don't know. In truth, I don't know even know how many books I've sold. I won't know until my publishers send me a thing. Right. I may be just sending books. Who knows? Yeah, it's a great book. Everybody should go by. It's a funny thing. I promise you, if if you don't like it, I'll keep it and I'll send you the money. I will. I'll re- I'll reimburse you. Just write to me and I'll send you back the money. Everybody who's bought this book flips over. I don't like it. Can you send me the money? I yes, I will. <laughs> That'd be funny if you return. I, 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 so uh, let's talk about the book because I was let's rereading it. Your, uh, let's talk about your backdrop again. It's okay. nice. Look, you know, it's pushed the furniture in the corner. Uh, what are you painting? <laughs> no, I'm depressed. I haven't been out of the apartment. I'm in New York. You remember? No, no, it's a good look. When's the yard sale? <laughs> Uh, is that one of the divorce sisters' uh, stalls? <laughs> it's his underwear. I've been indoors too much. Uh, you know, it's weird now that I can go out more. I kind of realized I have nowhere to go. This is true. The other day, I was at the dollar store and I bought tape. <laughs> yeah. That was my day trip. That was it. That's my excitement. How much uh, does uh, tape cost at the dollar store? Well, here's what you want to do. If you want to have fun at the dollar store, ask for a price check. <laughs> um, Albert Brooks. You met Albert Brooks. Oh, man. Albert Brooks was the man. Was he your... Now, you write in the book that he was one of your like top five comedic icons. In fact, I had one of his records, right? A Star is Bought? Yes. And sadly, so stupid of me, I was a kid, but I used it as a litmus test when I was dating women. And I would play the record and kind of base their reaction on what the potential of the relationship was going to be. Like, if they didn't get it, uh, there's probably going to be trouble. Right. Uh, I mean, it's not the only reason I would, but... And then if they really loved it, they went to Hollywood to find Albert Brooks instead. Right. Oh, by the way, I'll tell another quick litmus test that we'll get back up first. I, uh, when I was on the first day, this is so lame, and I'm not afraid, you know. So we would go to a restaurant, and typically at a restaurant, there would be like a little vase with a flower in it, right? So at some point, I would move the vase towards the date, and go, by the way, I got you something. And, <laughs> and then say, I, I wasn't sure where we were going to sit, so I had one put on it. <laughs> and How does that normally work? Well, I kind of stopped when uh, I mistakenly did that when I went on a date with the also comedy writer. And uh, she, uh, she, she looked at me and goes, Oh, so, so that's what you do on your first date? That's, that's your go-to joke? Not anymore. <laughs> right. Now, I, I have been accused of being threatened by funny women. 
Because I say that I could never be in a long-term relationship with either a, a comedy writer or a comedian. And it's not, I don't think because I'm threatened by funny women, I, I think I'm threatened by funny people. I, I, it would be a man as well. No, I just wouldn't want the, you know, I don't want to keep topping and competing in, you know. Uh, I, I would fall in love with funny women. I dated a lot of comedians. Uh, but did you marry a comedian? Uh, no. Yeah. Uh, not that I know of. Um, <laughs> but I, uh, I, I realize that you probably can't marry a comedian. Uh, it may not be a good long-term, super long-term marriage thing, but I just would have a blast hanging out with funny women. It was great. You know? Yeah. A lot of laughing. I, I find... I just want normalcy at, in my home life. And I, and I think funny people, really, really funny people, can be really, really annoying. I know I am and moody. So I, I just I would like somebody who isn't as damaged. Can you be funny and not be damaged? I don't, I don't think know. of you as damaged and you're funny. Uh, let me call my therapist. <laughs> But anyway, to get back to Albert Brooks, because I always like telling the story that when the writer's strike was around, I think it was 10 years ago already, but... Uh, Albert 2007. Brooks, yes. And uh, so, uh, as a kid, I loved his records, and there was something that just spoke to me. And uh, during the writer's strike, I was over here near my neighborhood at the Radford lot, production lot. Uh, writers would circle every day uh, in the strike line. And Ella Brooks started showing up, and I'm like, oh, my God, he's here in person. And to the point where, like, I was this weird soccer guy. Mm -hmm. And I just kind of walked behind him just to listen to what he's talking about with his friends. And uh, so uh, agencies and stuff like that would bring food trucks to the writers. And there'd be, like, a barbecue truck and pizzas and stuff like that. And uh, But one day there was a low, low rent I guess, boutique agency. And the head of the agency had a, you know, like a Ralph's plastic bag full of those little boxes of sun-made raisins <laughs> with like a Kinko's label of, you know, whatever agency. <laughs> <laughs> so as the writers are walking in a circle, he's handing them out, you know, to the writers. And Albert Brooks is in front of me, uh, gives Albert Brooks the raisins, and... He looks at him and turns, not knowing that I'm behind him, but knowing there's someone behind him, and goes into a rant. So what am I supposed to do? I call my agent, hello, CAA, and Albert, how are you? <laughs> I got raisins. I know you never gave me raisins before. I don't think we can work together anymore. You ever give me raisins? No. I don't know. Somebody gives me raisins, and all of a sudden we're friends. We're in life. We can't do this anymore. We can't work together. Thanks for the raises. No, thank you for nothing. It was like five minutes in my face. Wow. It was, it was great. That's, that's heaven. Raisins are sour grapes, aren't they? I think they are. What do I know? The Albert Brooks, boy, everybody should uh, buy A Star is Bought, because I think if memory serves, each track is an attempt to 
attract a specific demographic. So he does a style of comedy to attract all the different types of potential audiences that are out there, right? But speech is a different form of radio. It's right. a different form of radio and music related. It's so kind of obscure and to even explain that people wouldn't even kind of wrap their heads around it. Like there was a, uh, there were these popular things in the 70s. Dickie, Dickie something would do the... I know sharks are stupid. They would gather up songs and play, tell a story with music clips. We should do one. Yes. We should do, uh, like Jaws, right? They tell us. Yes. What was um, his name? Dicky something. Dicky, I forget. Right. So it'd be like, we're standing outside the world premiere of the movie Jaws, and look, it's Linda Ronstadt. I told you, I, you know, I'm going to do right. the Ronstadt clip to, to piece these stories together. So the concept on the Albert Brooks thing was we couldn't clear the rights for any music. So now that we make up a story, we make up our own little audio music clips to tell the story. <laughs> Which just goes, it's so funny because what's the point? If you're making up the, it's not found humor. Yeah. We should do it with, pub, have you ever done one with public domain? No. It would be fun to do. Huh? I don't even know what public domain music. Well, I thought uh, you were going to say, I haven't talked to public domain. Like, I thought you thought public domain was like a rapper. Yeah. Is there a rapper named public domain? Uh, yes. No, but there's one. There's one name, uh, Special K. Yes. Which uh, is special needs rapper. <laughs> I, uh, so on Family Guy, you you wrote one of my favorite episodes, and I'm not being a contrarian here. I happen. One of my biggest regrets in life is not meeting Frank Sinatra Jr. And people are going to say to me, "Oh, you're just saying that." You worked with Frank Sinatra Jr., is that correct? Yes. For Family Guy. You wrote one of the best episodes of Family Guy. What was it like working with Frank Sinatra Jr.? I think guys like Frank Sinatra Jr. are heroes. He passed away to grow up under the well, shadow. I didn't actually spend much time with him. I just kind of met him at... Family Guy, they used to record, we were in a big office building over near the Bray Carpets. Right. And Seth had a recording studio built on the floor where the writer's room is. So everybody would show up and record in the booth there. So I just met him briefly. Really right. going. And then I already had moved on to Futurama, back to Futurama, by the time he came in and recorded the uh, DVD, uh, 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 the soundtrack, the sidetrack, the extra, whatever. What was the episode? Well, here's the thing, you know, I, I've been at, I was at Futurama and I was trying to really find my groove at Family Guy and try to fit in and find out where I can best contribute. And one of the things I really wanted to do, because most of the writers weren't doing this, is like when you come up with a story for Family Guy, it usually comes up in the room. Somebody maybe will have a notion of, you know, what if this and Seth would find it, and then it would start jamming, and then the story would come out. Right. I instead like, said, well, it may help me get in the groove of the room if I I spent my lunch hours thinking of stories, which the other writers really didn't do it, like I said. But 
uh, and I felt like you mean actually was, preparing for your job. Yeah, 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 and that felt like the perfect story that would fit in Seth's wheelhouse because he loves that. Era. And what is the story? Um, I lost uh, it. Um, that was my son. Um, is he back from college? He uh, he his college was online. Oh, so he's. But uh, he doesn't live here. He just comes here when he's hungry. <laughs> and, uh, That's your tr your twins. Yeah. Right. Uh, Martin and Lewis. Um, so uh, is your dog really named Marty Allen? Yeah. You know, when I want him in the house, I go hello there. <laughs> Does he have a, another dog named Frenchie? Uh, no. Marty I, Allen was married to Frenchie, right? I, yes. I would say to Marty, as his astronaut character, is that a crash helmet? I hope not. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay, so what was the episode with Frank Sinatra uh, Jr.? Basically, uh, I don't remember the character's names anymore. That's just, Dewey, uh, Brian, Lois. Brian, uh, Brian starts uh, a rat pack. He starts to sing in the local club. He's feeling down and out. And then he eventually builds his own little Brad Pack studio, joins in. And Frank Sinatra Jr. joins in. And then he gets too popular and too drunk and just starts fights and chaos. Uh -huh. And then uh, he freaks out and bites uh, Peter and then is kicked out of the house. And then he's lost and everybody feels bad that he's right. gone and they search for him. But. Uh, I read somewhere, maybe in your book, I, I saw an interview with Seth, and maybe it's in your book that that's one of his all-time favorite episodes of Family. Yeah, it is like his top 20 favorite because he gets to do like three old-school swinging songs. Right, you know? right, right. Um, I, of course, didn't write any of the music. I don't know from the music how to be writing that. Um, but they were all original songs. Right, right. So, Friends, coming back, are you going to watch it? Is it possible that Friends, I'm being serious, is too good to enjoy? Uh, As opposed to Seinfeld, which is raw and sloppy and not... Where they haven't... Like, Friends crack the science of the sitcom. They, they figured out how to come up with a perfect sitcom kind of like the Simpsons. And so, you go, okay, it's a lot of brilliant people sitting around a room. They know the math. And it's you go, yes, this is fantastic. This is, the everything is perfect. Uh, well, first of all, I feel like Seinfeld is not sloppy because I kind of spent a lot of time studying that show to figure out how they figure it out, which almost works as a detriment, like, for me right now because... It's a, Seinfeld is a little bit of plot first. I mean, eventually, as the show went on, you got to know the characters more and more, but it's so plot-driven, and how all the A, B, and C stories kind of come together at the end. He creates, like, this universe of people that will kind of run into each other and things that don't happen in real life, you know. Um, so, But it is a choppy. It's edited choppily. They have continuity issues, Right. Well, I don't know about that, but they have a lot going on. So there's three stories, three 
a lot of times three heavy stories, which is really hard to get in 20 whatever minutes. Right. You know. Um, it's funny, I didn't watch Friends a lot. I don't know why. Uh, but Friends is better than it. I feel like it's definitely much more character driven. Um, it's the, the more successful sitcoms are always really about, I think we talked about this, but the more you get to know the characters and like them and spend time with them, the more character driven it is, the more people are going to attach themselves to it. Mm -hmm. If you can come from an honest place and keep them kind of grounded and yet somehow keep them funny, that's always kind of the first best place to start. Right. Um, but I mean, but just some, just because something's perfect doesn't mean it's enjoyable. Like, for me, The Simpsons is perfect. I turn on, like, The Simpsons and Friends was always playing in the house when the kids were growing up. And I would sit down and watch it. I'd think, wow, they know exactly what they're doing. This is... Here's the thing with Friends, and I don't understand why yet the network hasn't come up with the same idea, because my sons, when they were... 17, 18, they fell in love with Friends and probably watched every episode twice, as did their friends, because it was an example of what their next phase of life is going to be. Right, right. They were so locked into it. It's like, this is going to be us in two, three years. Right. Uh, and then the people who live that life also will fall in love. Right. And them. all six of them are amazing, amazing. So I auditioned. I got called in to audition for friends when there was a period when my stand-up was taking off and I actually got called in and I arrogantly went in and I met is it Marta? Who's the woman who? Marta Kaufman. Marta Kaufman. Uh, and she mentioned <laughs> I didn't watch friends and my agent said are you familiar with friends? I said of course and I go in to read. First of all I can't act that's the first thing and secondly she starts telling me about Marcel. There was a monkey named Marcel. And I'm going, uh-huh, uh-huh. She's like setting it up for me. I'm going, uh-huh, uh-huh. She says, you've never seen the show. And I went, uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> and I read once. And I said, it was really nice meeting you. Maybe I'll come back as a writer. But I can't act. <laughs> there was a time where Roseanne, when she had her show, would see funny stand-ups. Me? Them. Oh, okay. I was one of them, yeah. And then put it in the room, right? Yeah, the right well, Tom brought me in. Okay, because the, the classic story was this, uh, they uh, brought in a uh, stand-up on staff, and they're, they're discussing a story about Jackie. Jackie would be the sister, if I remember. Right. And then at one point, the stand-up looked up after all the discussions and said, which one's Jackie? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know what? That's how you become a stand-up, really. You'll think of something. You, you, you know, you can only do so much prep. Not everybody's like you. Most of the writers at Family Guy were working in the room and not, you know, worrying about, you know, during lunch, coming up with, with script ideas. Hey, writing a book. Hello. Yeah. Did you enjoy working alone? And now with its success... And it is in a successful book. It's a funny thing how the professional comedy business made me fat and bald by Mike Rowe. Please buy the book because he'll come back. Larry Davis liked it. Wow. 
right? And and you look in the back, Matt Groening liked it, and Ray Romano, and Sarah Silverman, the Trailer Park Boys. And, um, Bob Odenkirk. Bob Odenkirk wrote the forward. Wow. Uh, so, buy the uh, book. Do me a favor. Buy this book. It. I, you know, I don't want to insult you by saying it's a toilet read. Um, How about if it's a toilet right? Can I call it a toilet right? You wrote it on the toilet. No. Well, in truth, the pages come off like toilet paper. <laughs> <laughs> it's so there are two plies, the pages. There are two plies, yes. Yes. By It's a Funny Thing, How the Professional Comedy Business made me fat and bald by Mike Rowe. He's the good Mike Rowe. Buy this book. Get it, Get several copies and give them to your friends. I promise you, it'll make you happy. It will make I would say buy a box of them, right? Yeah. And then pile your floors. <laughs> I'm saying buy the book. You don't have to read it. Just buy. It will make, if this book doesn't make you happy, I will... Keep the book, and I will send you a refund. I promise you, this book, it makes me happy. Now, you know, I've read it in pieces. I read it, I pick it up, and I start reading it. And I'm always happy for you. And, and there's some beautiful stories about you winning an Emmy right after your father passed away. And there's that great picture of you looking up to the sky when you won your Emmy, and it's just a beautiful story. It's bittersweet, mostly sweet, because you're a sweet guy. By the way, you did my show in 2012. I always say I finally got you. Somebody sent me a link. You were on the show. We did a Comedy Writers Roundtable with Kevin Rooney, Guy Nicolucci, and you, and we just talked about the comedy. I think it was 2012. Right. So you did do my show. Yes. I, I didn't want to embarrass you, but you forgot. I forgot. And you were great. Uh, by the way, here's, here's David reading my book. <laughs> <laughs> Is that me on the toilet or me not happy for your success? That's you on the toilet. Okay. <laughs> uh, but in truth, you know, that I, I wrote this book kind of 